and to the Republic, Republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. President Lyons, I'd like to call roll. Please. Commissioner Walker. Present. Commissioner Benedicto. Present. Commissioner Yanez. Commissioner Byrne. Commissioner, Here. Commissioner Yee. Here. Vice President Carter Overstone. Present. President Elias, you have a quorum. Also with us tonight, we have Chief Scott from the San Francisco Police Department and Executive Director Paul Henderson from the Department of Police Accountability. And President Elias, Commissioners, Chief Scott, Director Henderson, and members of the public, if I may take one minute to acknowledge Ms. Risa Tom from the Police Commission staff. This month marks the 35th year working for the city and county of San Francisco with the majority of that time spent working in the Police Commission office. Risa has dedicated her career to helping not only the members of the police department and the public, but to every single person, baby, and dog she comes across. It is because of Risa that the commission office is as organized and efficient as it is. She has spent hours upon hours cataloging, organizing, and training others to make the office more efficient. But Risa is family to those who work closely with her. Risa will always make the time to listen to anyone who needs to, someone to talk to. Her calendar is full of her colleagues' birthdays, and her candy jar is always full. Risa's office is usually the reason, if not the first stop, when family members come to introduce their newborns. Auntie Risa's office always has the most toys. Risa is a professional, a mentor, but above all, a friend. So it is with our most heartfelt congratulations, mixed with the sadness of the pending goodbye, that we wish Risa the happiest of retirement on December 30th, 2022, as she embarks on her next big adventure. Thank you. Thank you, Sergeant. And I would like, even though she's not present, for her to know how valuable she is. She really is part of the glue that keeps this operation together. I remember when I first came into the commission office, she was always so warming. She was like my honorary Lola. And she is, would remind me of my Filipino culture and my Filipino heritage. And always, we would talk about Filipino treats. So. She was always invaluable in getting our agendas, the documents we needed, any type of logistical concerns. If the uh, sergeants weren't available to us, she was always there to answer any questions. It is a huge loss to our office, I think, but we do have an exceptional backup teammate that is going to be filling her rather large shoes. So I'm very sad to see her leave, but I wish her the best, and I really hope that for fun, she comes back to visit us. <laughs> Commissioner Yanez. You, oh, okay. Anyone else? Chief? For those of you that don't know, was the first person along with Sergeant Rachel Kilshaw that I met when I came here to apply for the job. And um, from day one, even before I came here, she's been nothing short of just the ultimate professional, kind, kind-hearted, but one of the hardest workers that you'll ever meet. And that uh, almost six years of being here now, that has never changed. So I just want to say thank you, Teresa, and, and all of her family. Uh, her, her husband is also SFPD retired. Her, her son, uh, Chris, is also a cadet. And so that family has given much to the city. So I just want to say thank you, Teresa, and wish her all the best in her retirement. Thank you. Commissioner Yee. Yeah, thank you, Mayor, uh, Madam uh, President. Uh, I just want to, uh, we're going to miss uh, Risa. Uh, when I got over here, she's uh, been very uh, helpful in, in getting me situated. So 
and uh, pretty much kept me in line with uh, in there. So we surely miss her service here, and hopefully, maybe in the future, she comes back and visit us. So thank thank her again and her family, and happy holidays to everybody else. Vice President Carter Oberstow. I just wanted to thank Risa uh, for her incredible service to this commission. Um, she's just an incredibly uh, warm person. She's incredibly diligent, has incredible attention to detail, um, and at the same time really never takes credit for, for all of her hard work. Um, and I think the public doesn't really get to see how hard this commission office works um, to make everything we do possible. And Risa was an indispensable member of the team and just want to thank her so much for her service to this commission, for her service to our city, and wish her uh, the best in, in retirement. Thank you. And she can give public comment and she can sit with us. I'd be willing to save her seat in the front row in all of 2023 so well we've extended that invitation to many who have left this commission and as you can see they have not uh, accepted any of our invitations but we will definitely extend it so thank you all right sergeant let's get it going all right next was to be line item one general public comment for members of the public we are going to limit general public comment to 30 minutes and two minutes for every person that calls in and then we will continue the general public comment towards the end of the meeting after <laughs> At this time, the public is now welcome to address the commission for up to two minutes on items that do not appear on tonight's agenda, but are within the subject matter jurisdiction of the police commission. Under police commission rules of order during public comment, neither police or DPA personnel nor commissioners are required to respond to questions by the public, but may provide a brief response. Comments or opportunities to speak during public comment period are available via phone by calling 415-655-0001 and entering access code 2490-420-5325. Alternatively, you may submit public comment in either of the following ways. Email the Secretary of the Police Commission at sfpd.commission at sfgov.org, or written comments may be sent via U.S. Postal Service to the Public Safety Building located at 1245 3rd Street, San Francisco, California, 94158. If you would like to make com public comment, please approach the podium or press star 3. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. Thank you very much. We need uh, for all the city government to work together to solve the city's numerous problems. In addition, we need to have people we have the ability to add our point of view to the mix in order to resolve these issues. We applaud the police commission for giving people two minutes at the start of each of your meetings. This is a real uh, benefit. The real question is, do you have the time or the concern to listen to our comments. One of the things that I think will come up numerous times and probably tonight, but we need to be cognizant of how we change policy that is directly in opposition to the law. We need to change the law first. It is not the police commission's standing to change the law. That is up to the legislative bodies. Thank you so much. Bye. 
Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. Hello, my name is Jean Bridges, and I volunteer with Wealth and Disparities in the Black Community. The following is a quote from founder Felicia Jones. Quote, addressing the injustices of black San Franciscans is urgent. I'm going to call this what it is, anti-blackness in use of force, arrests, and racial profiling via traffic stops. I've grown tired of talking to the police commission, to SFPD, and to the Board of Supervisors. If the tables were turned and these statistics represented white folks, I know there would be an urgency. When are you going to take responsibility and address the harsh, biased, and unjust statistics? You took an oath to uphold the law for all San Franciscans. As I said, I am tired, not tired enough to quit. However, tired of our concerns falling on deaf ears. We've reached out to new sources who find this anti-blackness an urgency, and therefore we've sought help from Attorney General Bonta and his team." End quote. Wealth and disparities in the black community is the one group that has continuously worked on and become expert on the issue of unjust policing in San Francisco since the December, fi December firing squad style execution of Mario Woods by SFPD in 2015. That's over seven years working on injustices in San Francisco policing. WDPC provided well-researched and written input during the DGO 9.01 process, and our input has been largely disregarded by the police commission. Meanwhile, police officers are dominating the process. SFPD doesn't want this DGO. SFPD is not reformed nor on a path to reform. SFPD stubbornly refuses to act on its own anti-black data. This commission has greatly mishandled this process. Our valid criticisms are falling on deaf ears as Supervisor Peskin and Commissioners Elias, Benedicto, and Carter Oberstone cheer each other on and continuously ignore how problematic it is to have police being allowed to run and to ruin this DGO. WBDBC's input must be included. Police input is the opposite of community input. Thank you. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. Thank you. Um, I wanted to add that from the previous speaker, this commission is starting to completely overstep your authority by telling officers how and they sh should follow established law. If people don't like a law, let's go to the legislature. That's the adjudicator. That's where the public voice is heard. And it's not your role to overstep and tell officers not to follow their sworn oath to uphold laws in this city. What I am disappointed in is that you brag about how your outreach has been so broad, but it really has, it's extremely limited to the constituencies, communities, and organizations that prop up the proposals you want. And I think I wanna send a message to the San Francisco police officers. Don't let whatever happens tonight and future votes dissuade you from following the law or dissuade you from enforcing the traffic codes or other laws. This is, all, this is the safety of citizens at stake and your safety as well. I urge the commission to step back, realize where its authority lies and get more input on controversial and dangerous proposals like the ones that have been proposed previously and tonight. Thank you. Uh, callers, as a, as a reminder, DGO 9.01 is on the agenda for tonight. So for de general public comment, it is only for items that are not on the agenda. 
So I let that one slip. I am apologize, but from now on, all um, general public comments cannot be about items that are on the agenda. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. Um, my name is Susan Buckman. I live in District 6, and I volunteer with the Welcome Disparities in the Black Community. The following is a quote from our founder, Felice Jones. Addressing the injustices of black San Franciscans is urgent. I'm going to call it what it is, anti-blackness in terms of use of force, arrests, and racial profiling and traffic stops by SFPD. I've grown tired of talking to the police commission, to SFPD, and to the Board of Supervisors. Where is the urgency? If the tables were turned and these statistics represented white folks, I know there would be an urgency. When are you going to take responsibility and address the harsh, biased, and unjust statistics? You took an oath to uphold the law for all San Franciscans. As I said, I am tired, not tired enough to quit, however tired of being a dead horse and tired of our concerns falling on deaf ears. Since you're not allowing me to speak on DGO 9.01 at this point, I will make my comments more general. There is this attitude among the POA and among the officers aligned with the POA that officers are victims in the process of police reform. But the clear victims are not the officers. They are the black and brown community who are um, the victims of bias, the victims of violence, the victims of murder in some cases. So as you work on police reform, remember, who the victims are and who the aggressors are. Don't be fooled by scaremongering by the POA. Remember that you are here not to help the police department, but to protect the, the people of San Francisco from the excesses of the police department. Thank you. And President Lyons, that is the end of public comment. Thank you, Sergeant. Before we go to the next item, uh, I am going to like to say a few words. From the beginning of this process, we have always said that we want to pass an effective evidence-based policy that both protects public safety and combats the serious and unacceptable levels and problems of racial disparity in this city. We've heard great feedback since opening this item up for debate last week members of the public, elected officials, our fellow commissioners, and others have flooded our emails, our phones, and have contacted us about this process. We've collected information for the past eight months on this policy. We heard the calls and the requests for expanding parts of the policy for changing parts of the policy and everything in between. Last week, this policy was presented before this commission, and it was presented to the fellow commissioners who were unable to participate in the process of this DGO. It also allowed the public to see a final version that we had been working on for months. After we <clears throat> published the final draft on that Thursday, the Monday, we had a three to four hour conversation with the chief, both Commissioners Benedicto, Vice President Carter Oberstone, and myself. 
After the final draft of the policy was posted, I reached out to the mayor's office, inviting them to the table to discuss this DGO along with the chief. That invitation was never accepted. When this matter was before the commission last week, although I wasn't physically present, I was able to participate and watch as the information and the policy unfolded. Yesterday, I was personally attacked after leaving the Board of Supervisors meeting by several members of the body without the ability to defend myself. I'm going to put my personal feelings aside about how I was treated and what was said in order to do the right thing and what is right for our city and public safety. There are additional perspectives that must be considered before this policy is finalized and I want those perspectives to be heard and an opportunity to finalize the edits that we received. I wanna express my deepest gratitude to those members who supported me. I heard you. I wanna thank the SFMTA Board of Directors and the Mayor's Office of Disability who reached out to us on Monday and we uh, excuse me, Commissioner Benedicto and Vice President Carter Oberstone met with these two agencies and we had a robust conversation and they enlightened us on some of their concerns. We were also very happy with the feedback we've received. We looked forward to incorporating the feedback and we plan to release a further revised version of this policy when the commission returns next year. And because of all of those reasons, I am pulling 901 from the calendar, and I'd like to move on to agenda item number two. Line item two, stop data presentation presented by SPURS, San Francisco Bay Area Planning and Urban Research Association, Economic Justice Policy Director, Jacob Denny, discussion. Jacob, welcome uh, to the commission. Thank you so much for coming to present. Just want to briefly uh, introduce you to uh, fellow commissioners and members of the public. So Jacob is the, the policy director at SPUR, San Francisco Bay Area Planning and Urban Research Association. Um, Jacob uh, leads research and advocacy efforts to ensure that all people in the Bay Area are economically secure. He worked across the country on issues related to the criminal legal system and other systems that disproportionately impact low-income and working people. Jacob was the policy and research director at the Insight Center, a national racial and economic justice organization. He has been a researcher focused on criminal legal systems at the Pew Charitable Trusts, a researcher and advocate focused on fines and fees for the Southern Poverty Law Center, and began his career working in the Massachusetts State Senate. Jacob received his Master's of Public Policy from the Price School, of public policy at the University of Southern California and his bachelor's in political philosophy from University of Massachusetts, Boston. Jacob, uh, thank you so much for joining us and, and welcome to the commission. Thank you, commissioners, for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to come talk to you all today um, about some traffic stop data analysis that we've been working on at SPUR. <clears throat> so just to say again, my name is Jacob Denny. I'm the policy director the Economic Justice Policy Director at SPUR. Um, we're gonna talk today about, well, I'm gonna introduce you to SPUR, the data analysis, go over some traffic stops broadly in San Francisco, and then narrowly look at, talk about the pretext stops proposed in DG, 
If at any time you want to stop me and ask a question, please do. This is going to be quite a bit of data. <laughs> this is a lot of charts. Um, and I'm happy to talk about them, but I'd also, any questions, concerns come up, please let me know. So first I'll tell you a little bit about SPUR. SPUR is a nonprofit public policy organization focused on finding solutions to the problems big cities face. We're based in San Francisco, San Jose, and Oakland, and we work to build a prosperous and equitable Bay Area for everybody. Uh, as Commissioner Carter Oberstone said, I'm the Economic Justice Policy Director at SPUR. Uh, my background is in racial and economic justice research, advocacy, uh, with a particular focus on quantitative and qualitative research. So this analysis uses the 2019 Racial Identify Identity Profiling Act. Uh, it's the most recent year for which we have driver data that is normal. 2020 and 2021, uh, because of the pandemic, driver behavior was incredibly abnormal. Um, pandemic disrupted that behavior. 2022 promises to be more normal. Um, uh, the data we've seen so far shows that drivers are returning to pre-pandemic behaviors. And the demographic data used is from the 2019 five-year American Community Survey from the U.S. Census. So what we're first talking about <clears throat> is traffic stops in San Francisco. California has some of the most expensive traffic citations in the United States. Um, the high cost of our traffic citations have a disproportionate impact on lower income people. Uh, traffic stops and citations are intended to make our roads safer, but many of those stops have nothing to do with road safety. Um, in 2019, there were 60,000 SFPD traffic stops. So when we break out this data by race and ethnicity, this is data I'm sure many of you have seen and talked about in the past. We see that uh, black and Latinx drivers are disproportionately represented in traffic stops in San Francisco. Um, Asian and white drivers are underrepresented. Uh, we see that when we break it out by gender, um, men are more likely to be stopped by police than women are. That's true across the country and is true in San Francisco. Um, and we see that disproportionality represented across racial and ethnic groups again, um, though with white men being slightly uh, overrepresented based on their census data. So when we look at the per capita stop rate, which says for every group of 10,000 people living in the city, um, how many of them would be stopped by police, we see that black drivers are five times represented uh, white drivers uh, to the tune of 4,640 black people expect to be stopped by police in any given year per 10,000 black uh, residents polled. When we look at reasons for stop, we see that uh, the reasons for stop vary by group um, or racial and ethnic group. Half of all black drivers are stopped for moving violations, that's speeding, um, other kind of dangerous driver behavior, the things that we're concerned about that have an impact on driver on public safety. White drivers, 75%, Asian drivers, 74%, total as a whole, 65. Uh, black drivers are more likely than any other group to be stopped for what's coded as equipment violations, as well as for non-moving violations. And you see the trend continues when you break it out by gender. Um, again, black men in particular are more likely to be stopped for equipment violations, but black women as well uh, are overrepresented in uh, equipment stops. So what happens after you've been stopped? Um, this is looking solely at whether or not were, someone was given a citation or warning or no citation. So some of these percentages don't add up to 100 because, or 99 because there are other outcomes possible such as arrest. But we see that black drivers are the only racial or ethnic group where a majority of stops do not result in a citation. 56% uh, of black drivers stopped by police for traffic stops are not given a ticket. 
white drivers, 71%, Latinx, 59%, Asian, 77% are given a traffic ticket when they are stopped by police. Um, and this, again, spells out by race and gender as well. Both black men and women, uh, a majority of those stopped, do not receive a traffic citation when they are stopped by police. Uh, but because of the high rate of stop, we see that black drivers are actually more likely to receive a citation than white drivers. If you pooled all population in San Francisco, um, we see that black people are nearly three times as likely to have been received a traffic ticket than their white neighbors. Uh, so again, the disproportionate impact of traffic citations are felt by San Francisco's black community. So when we look broadly, what is the most common reason for stop by race, race and ethnicity? Black drivers, the three most common reasons for stop are license plate displayed incorrectly, failure to obey signs or signals, and no registration. White drivers, uh, they are failure to stop at a stop sign, crosswalk, or a light, failure to obey signs or signals, and unsafe speeds. Uh, Latinx is a local ordinance violation. That's just how it displays in the data that is kind of a catch-all for San Francisco-specific uh, laws as opposed to the broader traffic code. Failure to obey signs or signals, failure to stop at a crosswalk, Asian failure to stop at a stop sign or crosswalk, local ordinance violation, or unsafe speed. Um, so we see that black drivers in particular are more likely to be stopped for what are coded as equipment violations, license plate affixed incorrectly, no registration. Those are the two of the three most common reasons for stop for black drivers. So this is a uh, hotspot analysis. This is a spatial analysis of traffic stops in San Francisco. So this is a statistical tool that says we have this bounded geographic area, the census tracts in the city. Let's check each one's traffic stops and compare it to its neighbors and see who has more, which is in the red, and who has less than the model suspects. Um, so what we see is that the red areas, we have a statistically significant overrepresentation of traffic stops that is in our denser neighborhoods, Soma, Mission, Downtown, um, and in some of our more residential neighborhoods, we have fewer traffic stops uh, than we would expect to see um, in those neighborhoods. That's in the west side, largely. Uh, and then the rest is, has a normal amount of traffic stops occurring in those communities. The statistical model says that makes sense. Uh, we see that it makes sense. Many of the areas that have a, a higher rate of traffic stops are denser neighborhoods, have a higher population rate, which means higher pedestrian rate, but they're also communities that are very diverse and have large populations of color and many low-income people living in them as well. So stop there. <laughs> if anyone has any questions or concerns before we dive into the pretext. No, this is helpful. Oh, great. <laughs> Do you want to finish and then we'll... Oh, well, I, I, I'm happy to... I'm, I'm going to go on for another 30 slides so I can finish or you can ask questions, whatever you think. What, I think maybe might just be more efficient if it's all right with you, Commissioner, if he just wraps up his presentation, we can ask questions at the end. I think he's... he's before he goes into the pretext stuff, it's more about the data. So, I mean, I'd rather get clear about the data before we go into the... Okay, great. Go ahead. Thank you. Um, just a couple of questions in looking at the the result of traffic stops. Uh, I don't see a page number, but it's sure. it's the data that that um, says that uh, black drivers receive less tickets. Yep. Does that mean they're warned, or do we know? So it can be warning or just no citation. So uh, they're both lumped together here. Okay. Um, so they could have received a warning, or they just didn't get a ticket and got let go. 
Okay. And they were, they're more likely pulled over. The number one is for mechanical violations. Is, is so the, the number one reason for all racial and ethnic groups, the number one category is moving violations. The number one reason for stop for black drivers in San Francisco right. is license plate affixed incorrectly. Okay. Um, and so we're related to having one license plate, license plate on wrong, no license plate. Okay. I have a, <clears throat> excuse me. Great. Um, so I'm going to... No, I, oh, I also wanted some clarity. The spatial analysis of traffic stops, there are more traffic stops in the downtown area where it seems like there's more traffic. If Did you determine yeah, so we equitable didn't... numbers there? Like, because people don't necessarily drive a lot out in those other areas, especially all day long. So it compares to your nearest census tract. So this is, again, sorry, this is just the confusing part of kind of spatial analysis. It compares to your nearest neighbors. So it assumes, right, that not everything included in the map is identical. It it's going to, instead, the analysis looks at the nearest census tracts. So when you see the representation, um, it's going to compare the west side to the west side, and it's going to compare the denser areas to the denser areas, and expect those stops, those places to be geographically different. Okay. Okay, that's it for now. Thank you. Great. Um, I, I think I'd like to let you finish because I have some. Great. Thank you. No, thank you. Um, so next, we're going to do a pretext stop analysis. So uh, all of these stops will have a demographic analysis of the pr proposed stops banned by the DGO. Uh, many of them will have a per capita analysis, but not all of them, because some of them, the number of stops is so low, it doesn't make sense to do a per capita analysis, because half a person per 10,000, things like that. Um, there's also a search and arrest analysis included in here as well. Uh, and again, only pretext stops in the California code. So we, we ignore anything banned specifically in the San Francisco code. Um, so they display both license plates. What we see is, again, uh, black drivers make up 46% of all people stopped for failure to display both license plate in the city of San Francisco. Uh, white drivers are dramatically underrepresented here. Uh, Latinx drivers are underrepresented and Asian drivers are dramatically underrepresented. We also include now Middle Eastern and Pacific Islander data um, as well, and we see an overrepresentation in both of those communities. Uh, so sheriff stops given a citation by racial or ethnic groups. Only just 22% of black drivers stopped for failure to display both license plates are ticketed by police, despite making up a plurality of those stops. 45% uh, of white drivers are given tickets, 32% uh, of Latinx drivers, 58% of Asian drivers stopped for this are given a ticket. When we do a per capita stop rate, we see that black drivers are about 16 times as likely to be stopped for failure to display both uh, license plates as their white neighbors in the city of San Francisco. Latinx drivers also uh, about a little more than twice as likely to be stopped uh, as their white neighbors. When we look at the per capita citation rate, um, so again, despite just 22% of black drivers being ticketed for this offense, because of the sheer volume of stops made, uh, we see that black drivers are nine times as likely to be ticketed uh, at a per capita rate compared to their white neighbors. Uh, a search rate, we see that black drivers are searched 22% uh, of the time, um, or they make up 22% of all searches, 7% white, 14 Latinx, 4% Asian. Or sorry, yeah, 18% of the time they're searched. Uh, people stopped in total are searched. So black people, again, overrepresented in the search column. Uh, 
And we see for this particular, oh, I'm sorry, I'm moving the wrong thing ahead. <laughs> uh, we see that there's uh, 4,000 total stops for this made in, in 2019, a little more than that. 6% of these stops result in the recovery of contraband. Again, contraband is a really big list of things, uh, ranges from money to alcohol to drug paraphernalia, drugs to things like guns and other very serious concerns. Uh, less than 1% of the stops resulted in the discovery of a gun, uh, and 1% of stops resulted in an arrest. So next up, failure to display registration tags or expired registration. Uh, what we see again is that black drivers are dramatically overrepresented. 34% of all stops for failure to display registration tags or an expired registration are black drivers. Uh, Latinx drivers also overrepresented 21%. White drivers underrepresented at 30%, Asian drivers underrepresented at 8%, Middle Eastern and Pacific Islander drivers also overrepresented. When we look at sheriff stops given a citation, we see again that uh, white and Asian drivers are more likely to be given a citation than their neighbors or of uh, different racial demographic groups. Uh, black and Latinx drivers less likely to be given a citation than their white or Asian neighbors. Uh, per capita stop rate, again, black people are nearly 10 times as likely to be stopped um, than their white neighbors for having a, a failure to display registration tags or expired registration. <coughs> and we see that uh, the per capita citation rate, black drivers are much more likely uh, to be cited despite having a smaller citation rate. Search rate, again, black drivers more likely to be searched than any other racial ethnic group. Latinx drivers right behind them. Um, white and Asian drivers less likely to be searched. So this is about 4,000 total stops. 5% of searches resulted in uh, recovery of contraband. Uh, fewer than 1% of stops resulted in recovery of gun. And about 0.7% of stops for expired registration resulted in an arrest. Failure to illuminate license plates. Uh, so 25% of people stopped for this offense are black drivers, uh, dramatically overrepresented. Latinx drivers, 29% of stops, also dramatically overrepresented. Uh, white and Asian drivers, underrepresented. Middle Eastern Pacific Islander drivers, overrepresented as well. Just 19% of black drivers are given a citation, 50% of white drivers, and 60% of Asian drivers are cited when they're stopped for this offense, and 20% of Latinx drivers are cited when they are stopped. Uh, we see a per capita stop rate here. Black driver, black people, six times as likely to be stopped uh, for failure to illuminate license plate. Search rate, 15% of black drivers stopped for this are searched, 4% white, 10% Latinx, 10% Asian, and 10% total. So black drivers overrepresented in searches here, or more likely to be searched. There's a very small number of stops, 105 stops in 2019. 1% of searches result in recovery of contraband. No guns were recovered during these stops. As far as we know, no stops resulted in arrest. Driving without illuminated taillights. Again, black drivers, 29% of all stops, 5% of the population. Uh, Latinx drivers also overrepresented, 26% of all stops. Uh, white, Asian are underrepresented, Middle Eastern and Pacific Islander are overrepresented. Uh, sheriff stops given a citation, 26% of black drivers are given a citation, white 43%, Latinx 33%, Asian 52%. So again, black and Latinx drivers less likely to receive a citation. 
but the per capita stop rate, uh, once again, much higher for black drivers uh, than white drivers and Latinx drivers, slightly higher. Search rate, black drivers stop for this offense, 23% of them are searched, 8% white, four Asian, four Latinx, and 13% total for everyone stopped. Again, a very small number of stops, 379, 4% of searches result in recovery of contraband, 1% result in the recovery of gun, 2% result in arrest. Driving without illuminated brake lights, 19% of these traffic stops are black drivers, again overrepresented, 31% white, underrepresented, Latinx drivers slightly overrepresented, Asian drivers underrepresented, Middle Eastern and Pacific Islander uh, overrepresented again in these stops. Um, Black drivers less likely than any other racial ethnic group to actually be given a citation for this stop. White drivers 50% receive a citation, Latinx 45, Asian 50% of the time. Again, black drivers uh, per capita are much more likely to be stopped than their white peers, uh, Asian slightly more. And black and white drivers are equally likely to be searched. 19% of these stops result in a search, Latinx 7%, Asian none, total was 6% of the time. Uh, slightly more stops than the last group, 700 total stops. 1% of these searches result in recovery of contraband. No guns were recovered. About 0.3% of the stops resulted in an arrest. Objects affixed a mirror. 44% uh, of stops uh, are of black drivers. Uh, white people dramatically underrepresented at 10% of stops. Latinx, 32%. Asian, 6 Middle Eastern and Pacific Islander, also slightly overrepresented. Citation rate, again, is, is very low for all racial and ethnic groups. Um, black drivers remain the, the least likely to receive a citation if stopped for this offense. Uh, and we see the per capita stop rate. Black drivers 36 times as likely to have been stopped for this than white drivers. Search rate, 25% of black drivers stopped for this offense were searched, 11% white, Latinx also uh, slightly rep or high represented at 21%. 9% Asian, but the total is fairly high at 27% of all of these stops resulting in the search. Just 373 stops, 5% of stops result in recovery of contraband, fewer than 1% of stops result in recovery of a gun, 1% result in an arrest. We're in the home stretch now, failure to signal. 23% uh, of stops for failure to signal are black drivers, 23% uh, white, so again, overrepresentation of black drivers, underrepresentation of white. Latinx drivers also overrepresented, actually, the, the number one racial ethnic group stopped for this offense at 28% of all stops. Asian drivers underrepresented, Middle Eastern and Pacific Islander uh, 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 populations also overrepresented. Black drivers are the least likely people to be cited when stopped for this offense. Uh, white Latinx are the most likely, and then Asian slightly less as well. Uh, and we see that 45% of black drivers stopped for this offense are searched by police, compared to 9% white, 23 Latinx, 25 Asian, and a total overall of 23%. Uh, again, a very small number of stops for this. Um, uh, it was very narrow. 11% of searches result in recovery of contraband, 2% result in the recovery of a gun, 0% uh, result in an arrest. So big picture, what's going to happen just based on this data, um, if the proposed DGO as currently written were going to affect, there'd be about 10,000 fewer traffic stops conducted in San Francisco every year. There would be an estimated $830,000 in fines and fees not administered. That's just based on the stops where a ticket was issued. Um, that doesn't include any costs associated with police service or indirect costs incurred by people who receive a citation. 
Um, and it would help reduce racial disparities in traffic stops in San Francisco by eliminating the number one and number three reason black drivers are stopped in the city. And with that, we will happily answer your questions to the best of my ability. Thank you for, for sitting through 50 slides of bar charts, not something many people besides myself look forward to. Thank you. I'm going to give you a minute to breathe and refresh because that was a lot. <laughs> and you did a phenomenal job and made it under time with time to spare. So thank you. No, thank you. Thank you for being here. I'm going to work a little bit backwards. Sure. On your last slide, you said that the proposed pretext stop would help reduce racial disparities by eliminating the number one reason black drivers are stopped in San Francisco. What would be the effect on the Latin community? Because in your slides, it indicates that not only black communities are racially um, or it's dis racially disproportionate, but there's also a, a huge racial disparity with respect to the Latin community as well. Yeah, so there would be a, a, a big decline that is also a top reason for black drivers in San, or I'm sorry, for Latinx drivers in the city as well. Latino drivers are stopped a significant number of times for this offense. It is, um, I think it's like the fifth top, most common reason that a Latino driver was stopped by police in San Francisco, I, I believe. Um, I don't have the data right in front of me, unfortunately. So the effect for, for a Latino community would also be significant. Um, you would see, again, you know, hundreds if not thousands fewer stops. And then I'm gonna jump to the front of the presentation. It's a few slides in that say reason for stop by race, ethnicity, and gender. And then you indicate moving equipment and non-moving. Mm -hmm. What qualifies as equipment stop? So equipment stops is a broad category, again, used by RIPA data. Um, and also the department reports it out kind of in those categories too. And it's usually there's something wrong with your car. There's something physically wrong with your car. Uh, again, dice hanging from your cracked windshield, tail light out, um, things unrelated to uh, the car's actual kind of driving behavior. And then on the following slide, you indicate the result of the traffic stop by race and ethnicity. Um, and you had indicated that with respect to um, the citation, do we know why that the, the individuals don't receive a traffic citation but are stopped? So it's just recorded as a warning or no <laughs> citation. Um, so I have not done this research, but someone could go in and say, I'm going to pull out everybody who received no citation or a warning and I'm gonna compare it to a search rate and then maybe see if there's a reason there. Um, but we don't totally understand why, based on the data we have, why a stop didn't result in a ticket. So it could be any number of things. But the sheer volume means that there's clearly a behavioral difference based on race and ethnicity. Because I, you know, one of the things that comes to mind is the argument that I've heard, which is officers will pull that perhaps one of the reasons why the there's a large number of people of color being stopped is because officers are giving them a break, that they pulled them over and even though there was a violation, I'm just gonna give them a break and let them go versus there really wasn't a reason to be stopped in the first place and that's why you're being let go. So how do we differentiate between the two groups? So I think that it's, it's pretty impossible to differentiate between the two groups unless you go in and do that deep analysis of searches. Um, I think that the really high 
or rather the really low rate of citations specifically for black and Latinx drivers as opposed to white, Asian, or other groups is indicative that there's something else motivating the lack of citation or the motive for the stop itself. Because why aren't police, I mean, if you turn that around, why aren't police giving breaks to white and Asian drivers in San Francisco since we know that white and Asian people across San Francisco live in a variety of economic circumstances. So we're not seeing that same break given. Um, and tied to the disproportionality in the stops, I think we're seeing that those stops are being used in a different way, or at least the data would indicate that there's something else happening. That's a great point. Um, now I want to move to the most common reasons for stops by race and ethnicity. I love this chart, by the way. Oh, um, good. I'm glad. On the Latinx, you say local ordinance violation. What does that mean? So that's just how the RIPA data, uh, for this presentation, for the first part of the presentation, it's using exclusively state-level data. So, so San Francisco Police Department reports their data up to the state. The state then uh, normalizes the data across all departments that currently report RIPA data. And so <coughs> any, that's, any law that's a San Francisco-specific law that's not in the California Vehicle Code or in the California Criminal Code gets tagged as local ordinance violation. So that bucket is pretty big because it's going to include anything that um, San Francisco has in the books that the state doesn't. Um, so it could be any number of things uh, in there. And I think if we, dis if we went back and disaggregated it um, by using the SFPD-specific data before it went to RIPA, we'd probably see that drop out of the number one spot or top three spot for many groups, and we'd see other stops move up. Can you give us some examples of what that would be? Um, I'm trying to think. I'm sure the commission or <laughs> the officers here can give us a specific of what uh, a, a San Francisco-specific one is. Sleeping in your car is a San Francisco one as well. Um, blocking a bus lane. Uh, there's a variety of behaviors that can get caught in that. And the, I noticed that the data and analysis is from the 20, 2019 RIPA reports. And um, I'm sure that you're aware that the new data from the RIPA reports, the 2021, and specifically um, the first, I think it was the first quarter of 2022, indicate that the racial disparities are even higher than 2019 data. So even though you're giving us the 2019 data, which shows these racial disparities and the alarming numbers, it's even worse now. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that um, it is fair based on what I've seen. I'm interested to see the complete data set as it comes out. Um, but the real value in this data is tracking it over time. It's one of the things that makes RIPA such a powerful tool for researchers and for kind of data-informed policymaking is we can track behavior over time and see that we're not just looking at a snapshot that is inaccurate or doesn't reflect the reality. I think based on what we've seen in 2022 data so far, we see that this reality is, is strong um, and continues. These trends in data are here. Um, they're not aberrations. Right. Um, and it also provides an analysis of how we as a city and county compare to other jurisdictions yes. within the state. And we aren't necessarily doing, I mean, we're not doing well. Yeah, so as part of research that we released um, this past summer, uh, Spur looked at seven different sites across California and compared traffic stops or and conducted the identical analysis in each places. And San Francisco is not performing well, particularly among the black population. They're dramatically overrepresented compared to other uh, RIPA participating agencies. Um, San Francisco is one of the worst. Uh, I, I haven't checked today, I don't think San Francisco is the worst performing uh, department in racial disproportionality, but it is one of the worst among those in the analysis we did. Particularly given the fact that the black population here in San Francisco is less than 5%, yeah. right? 
Yeah, and in the Bay Area as a whole, it's just 6%. So we're really talking about a very small black population across the region that are dramatically overrepresented in stops. Um, Oakland, which has a larger black population than San Francisco does, does not have the same level of disproportionality as San Francisco does in their traffic why? stops. I mean, I think that there's a lot of decisions that go into traffic stops um, in traffic enforcement. I think that there are decisions around where we where we send people to enforce traffic laws that has consequences. Um, I think there's also just priorities based on departments um, and then a variety of other decisions. So that's a, a kind of a long answer to say no. We don't really know why. There's a lot of reasons why. Um, but it, it is worse here. Okay. I was going to, I love also the failure to display and how you break it up on slide, like the total stops, the percentage of search results and stuff like that. I'm not good at math, obviously, <laughs> but I love the 4122, but then you say 6%, but I'm like, what's the number? So I guess we'll have to figure out the math on that later in terms of how, what the actual number is instead of the percentage. Sure, just the pure number of like who's like the number right, of citations, right. things like that. Yeah, I mean we can do the math quickly. Four thousand times twenty-two. Okay. You know we can get there. But um, uh, what we see again is just that, that disproportional representation. Um, but yeah, happy to send in anything also supplementary that just has pure numbers at any time. <coughs> All right, I'm going to turn it over to my fellow colleagues. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your presentation. No, thank you. It's very informative. Um, uh, Commissioner Yi. Thank you very much there, uh, President uh, Cindy Elise. Uh Thank you, uh, Jacob, uh, Danny. Um, Spur has been doing a lot of good, great work here in the city. I think over 110 years, thereabouts. Um, also, uh, just had some questions. Um, you know, you, you totally hit it on the re, you know, racial disparity along black drivers. You know, I, we see it per capita. But uh, I have a few questions um, on there in, in regards to uh, citation issues um, in the population that data that you, you share with us. Fair to, to display uh, both license plates. Mm -hmm. and so if you look in there, it's Asians given citations. We're at 58%. So for, say, 100 drivers that they stop, 58% given citations just curious why that's the highest yeah so I mean it's difficult to know for sure why officers decide to cite one group versus another but uh, it tends to indicate that um, the reason for stop rose to a level that was such that a citation was necessary or justified in the stop so one of the reasons why these stops could be a pretext stop is they were used as a reason to stop someone um, and then we see the very low citation rate, which reflects the fact that the reason for stop didn't rise to the level of uh, necessitating a citation. Whereas agent drivers may only be stopped um, for these things, or maybe majority of the time stopped for this when they've actually broken the law to an extent that an officer feels a citation is necessary. So, so that's what a display of both license plates. Same thing with the registrations, mm -hmm. expiration thing. Yeah. Uh, Asians is on, on the top of the list. Yeah. So for every 100, 58% are given a ticket. And yeah, and because we don't have the same level of geographic analysis done, there may be also differences in neighborhood enforcement levels and what uh, decisions officers make in different neighborhoods that would inform that. So it may be that large Asian populations living on the west side are much more likely to get a ticket um, yeah. driving than uh, black drivers uh, stopped on the east side. So I'm also looking at the last one, the failure to illuminate license plates. Again, shares of uh, stop cite given citations. 
So we're, uh, the Asians are, again, at 60%. Uh, it's percentage I'm looking at, mm -hmm. similar to what you look at data, too. So um, let's see if you have any you know, analysis on that or... Um, so, and this is the failure to display registration tags? Yeah, they're the same, it's the same thing. I'm just curious if there's sure. any, anything so, to that. I think, again, it's a, a question of what kind of decisions officer were making is why it resulted in a citation. I think it probably is, again, that the, 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 yeah. the tags were so expired yeah. that they rose to the level where they decided to cite. But when you look at the per capita citation rate, you actually see that Asians are the least likely to get cited. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, 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 it begs the question again, I think yeah. what it means is Asian drivers are less likely to be stopped for this than any other racial or ethnic group, which means the people who are stopped are probably being stopped because they don't have any registration stickers or anything like that, and then they're getting a ticket. Yeah. So just out of curiosity, if you would know the data, maybe in the future, you don't have to do it now, but is it the west side or the east side of Argania? Because I know a great portion of the Asians community lives on the west side. Mm -hmm. um, it's one of my observations, too, when we did the report of the stops in, uh, throughout the districts or the, or the stations, and the Richmond district uh, was, was totally uh, off the chart. So I'm just curious. Maybe we can talk about that later next time. Yeah, so, I mean, SFPD does report location data for all of their stops at an intersection level, so the department should also be able to present that data to you uh, and map out where stops are happening by category and then present that to you. Um, they, the the data is there. We have it. It's just also generally a matter of time <laughs> for us to yeah. dig in. But I, I agree. I think asking questions about how enforcement varies by geography and by neighborhood and by community is an important part of understanding traffic enforcement and its impact. Again, I want to thank Spur for this report. Uh, oh, thank you. They do outstanding job. I really, really appreciate them for all they have done. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Vice President Carter Obastone. Uh, thank you so much. Just want to join my colleagues in thanking you for this um, exceptional work and, and, and putting this together. Um, I was worried when I saw the number of slides, but you came in under time, which is just really, uh, really impressive. Um, so, so thank you for that. Um, first, just wanted to make a quick comment. I like how on some of the slides you broke out Middle Eastern and Pacific mm -hmm. Islander um, because you see that, that they have a different... Um, experience um, and um, are, are treated disparately, or at least uh, yeah, are, are stopped disparately. And um, just want to encourage the department when it does its 96A report. I would love to see Middle Eastern and Pacific Islander broken out. Um, the the you know we, we we have the data obviously it's it's part of the RIPA data, um, but in our reports we we generally just lump them in with Asian. Um, I think it would be helpful just to to see because they're clearly having a different experience. Um, I think a number of my colleagues asked you about this. I just want to return to this subject of citation rates. So if a racial group is stopped at a disproportionately higher rate than other groups, but they are cited at a lower rate, that tends to indicate that the traffic infraction was not the motivation for making the stop in the first instance. Is that correct? 
I think that's a reasonable assumption. That's an assumption I make based on the data is that the, the infraction itself was not the sole motivator. If it was, it would have resulted in a citation. Um, of course, there's high rates of warnings that everyone gets, but we see again when groups, some groups are getting 50% of the time are getting ticketed, 58% of the time are getting ticketed, and other groups, you know, we're talking about 10% of the time, there's some other motivator uh, happening in those stops. Right, and, and just conversely, if, if a racial group is stopped at a disproportionately low rate, but of those few stops, a higher rate of them turn into citations. That might suggest that the standard for stopping them for that infraction is much higher, such that the people who did get stopped probably violated the infraction in a particularly egregious way. Is yeah. that generally fair? Yeah, I think that's a very fair statement and a very fair assumption and an assumption I make. Okay, thank you. Um, so... Uh, you, one of your slides showed that black people are most likely to be stopped for uh, license plate infractions. White people are, are most likely to be stopped for blowing through a stop sign. And that generally black people are, are more likely to be stopped for equipment violations and white people are more likely to be stopped for moving violations. Is that, is that generally correct? So um, uh, black people are more likely than any other racial or ethnic group to be stopped for equipment violations. Um, they're also less likely than any other racial ethnic group to be stopped for moving violations. But a majority of black drivers stopped are still dropped from, stopped for moving violations. Moving violations still make up the majority of traffic stops and are you know, the general reason for concern in traffic enforcement. Um, but what we see when we dig into the reason for stop is that those really high levels of moving violations, or, or rather equipment violations, means that black drivers are much more likely to have um, their kind of top five reasons for stop to be equipment or non-moving violations, whereas white drivers are much more likely, their top five are almost all safety related or speeding, ignoring stop signs, ignoring red lights, et cetera. Right, and, and just for members of the public, moving violations tend to pose a, a risk to public safety. Yeah, mo moving violations are things violation. we're concerned about. <laughs> right, so, so when white folks get pulled over, it's, it's generally for, for, or most likely to be for stuff that, that poses a risk to our roadways, whereas for black people, they're more likely to be stopped for uh, things that don't pose a yeah. direct public safety threat. Exactly. 75% okay. of all dri white drivers stopped for a traffic violation in San Francisco are stopped for a moving violation, which is a violation that is you are doing something with a car that is against the rules, which is dangerous uh, and could harm other people. Whereas black drivers, just 50%, so the smallest among all racial or ethnic groups, uh, are stopped for moving violations. Great. Okay. And you, you went through at, at light speed uh, <laughs> every infraction yeah. um, that is called out in our current draft DGO. Yes. Um, and it was more or less the same story for each yes. one. Um, I just wanted to stop and pause on, on one of them, which I think is the second highest, the, the, the second most common thing that black folks could stop for, which is um, uh, registration tag. Mm -hmm. um, so there was 4,086 stops in 2019 mm -hmm. um black people were stopped at a rate of 305 per 10,000, and white people were stopped at a rate of 34. i just want to pause there and put it in slightly different terms so that means black folk are stopped at roughly a rate of one in 30 one in 32 something like that and white folk conversely have about a one in 300 chance 
of getting stopped for this. Um, another piece of your analysis for this stop was, or, yeah, for this infraction rather, was that stops for registration tags resulted in an arrest 0.7% of the time. So that means that for 4,000, roughly 4,100 stops, a little bit less, that would be 29 arrests. So that means that of, out of 4,086 stops, 4,057, there was no arrest. So there was no criminality found that was sufficiently serious to make a custodial arrest. And I just want to ask about this because one thing that we that we hear sometimes from our friends who uh, don't support uh, regulating pretext stops is that um, they say, you know, yeah, these low-level stops don't pose a direct public safety threat to our roadways, but they're indicators um, of, of that some other criminal activity is afoot. And so here, for this stop, just like all the other ones on the list, we only have 29 arrests out of 4,100 stops. So. I get, from your analysis, is that fair to say that the arrest rate is an uh, in, in indication of, you know, the rate at which there was some type of at least somewhat serious criminal activity discovered in the course of the stop? I mean, I think if you're using expired registration tags as a way to identify kind of really problematic and dangerous and illegal behavior, it's not a very good tool based on the arrest rate, is, is what I would say. Again, 0.7%. So we're seeing such a small number of these stops resulting in arrests, which is indicative of something more serious going on, um, that it's, it is not primarily an effective tool for that purpose. Um, I don't know if, if the intent is to use it in that way or not. Great. Okay, thank you. And last question. Your last slide said that the policy would result in 10,000 fewer traffic stops, but just want to be clear that that's assuming everything else stays static, right? So, right? so it is possible that if we made fewer stops for, say, license plate and registration, we could be making more stops for things like, say, totally. speeding, running red lights, blowing stop signs, sideshows, things like that. So we could have a scenario where we make the same or more stops if we reallocate those resources to the, the stopping for dangerous stuff. Is that right? Yes, exactly right. Uh, there would be 10,000 fewer of these stops. It would have no, I mean, I believe that traffic enforcement officers would continue to enforce traffic laws um, and may find other folks uh, in other places and geographies in the city to enforce um, those stops. Great. Those are all my questions. Uh, thank you so much again for, for putting this report together. It was really illuminating. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Benedicto. Thank you so much, President Elias. <clears throat> Jacob, thank you again for that excellent presentation. I'll, I'll echo what Vice, Carter, uh, what Vice President Carter Urbison said. I think that was a, a record on slides per minute there <laughs> for, for the presentation. I, I think a lot of the, the questions I had were, were asked by by Vice President Carter Oberstone. So I'll just make a, a brief comment. I wanted to, to sincerely thank you and also Spur for its work. Um, I've been working with Spur since before I was on the commission and has, it's an organization that's been consistently involved in the civic life of the city and in criminal justice reform uh, more generally. And this is, this is tremendous work. Um, you know, I'll note that this is, you know, the, 
the, the third or fourth in a series of data-driven presentations we've had before this commission about this policy. And I think they've really run the gamut. We had from the sort of highest level of generality where you had the Center for Policing Equity with national data, and, the, and, there, and there were some calls from the commission for state-specific data. And we had the Public Policy Institute of California, which provided very compelling statewide data. And there was curiosity about local data, and we've seen now um, you know, both from department presentations, from presentations from dedicated community organizations like Wealth and Disparities in the Black Community, and now from, from data-driven organizations like SPUR, we, we've now seen this local data. So I think we've really seen maybe the most comprehensive data analysis before this commission has adopted a policy uh, in its commission's history. And um, some, you know, uh, Vice President Carter-Oberson looked at the arrest and the, and the, the arrest data and the percentage of resulting in a gun, and I think that's really interesting data. And if you look at all the offenses that Spur looked at, um, the vast majority was, uh, was 1% or lower for uh, finding a gun, 1% or lower in arrests. Many were zero or under 1%. I think the highest might have been 2 or 3%. And this is looking at, at, at 10,000 stops worth of data. So I think that, um, that data really speaks for itself. I'd also really like to... Um, to challenge you know, interested members of the public to look at, you know, this data is all posted on the commission website. You know, 55 slides are not as fun as a single tweet or a single talking point that may or may not contain misinformation. But I, I challenge people that are interested in this policy to look at the data presentations we've had, to look at the recommendations we've had from subject matter experts in the space and from organizations like the Center for Policing Equity that have done um, analysis of this, of th this uh, type of work done across the country, because I think that that's where uh, you'll see uh, the data pointing in, in the same direction and the conclusions that can be drawn. So I, I would like to thank Spur for adding to, to this commission's uh, voluminous record as it considers this general order, and thank you, Jacob, for that presentation. Thank you. Thank Glad you. there's a think tank whenever you have a data set. <laughs> Well, we're also going to challenge the department now to, uh, when they tell us they can't meet the time limit, we're going to bring you back and have you show <laughs> how it's done. And with that, Chief Scott, you want to tell him something other than congratulations on meeting the time? <laughs> that was a great job of meeting the time. Oh, thank you. Say. Um, thank you, Mr. Denny, uh, for you and your colleagues and, and the research. I, I do have a couple questions. One is in line with what uh, Vice President Carter Overstone asked in, in terms of the pretext stop part of this analysis, and I, I don't. When I read it, I don't want to read uh, more into it than than what's meant to be read into it. But is is it of the ten thousand stops that you believe would be fewer? Mm -hmm. Is there an assumption that most or all of those are actually pretext stops? That that's kind of what I heard when you explained it to. Well, so the DGO proposes banning those stops in those specific instances. So the assumption is that all those stops listed, the, the nine stop pretext stops that would be disallowed, would meet the circumstances that the DGO requires, right? So it wouldn't be an investigation of another crime. It wouldn't be changing lanes that would cause an accident, all of that. So there's, the 10,000 number is probably too high. Um, it's just 10,000 of those stops that we analyzed. Yeah, so, so the reason I asked that question is, do you have any, maybe not research, but I'll ask the question, um, is there anything that would be indicative if curtailing the actual pretext stop itself would yield 
similar effects, policy effects. For instance, not banning enforcement, but banning, if, if we are to believe that most of these stops are pretext stops, mm -hmm. banning the actual pretext stop. So, yeah, so the, the difference between saying you can't make any of these stops versus saying you can't make pretext stops, again, I can only look at the data we have, and because we don't have a pretext stop flag in our data set, um, unfortunately, I can't say if a stop is or is not a pretext stop. So I can't say the effect it would have um, on the data just because, unfortunately, it's not indicated in the data set whether or not a stop was done for the purposes of a, a pretextual stop to conduct a search or ask a question. But in the event that it did, because I want to be careful, I know this is part of the discussion of can we get at this a different way than a ban. In, in the event that it did prohibit an officer from making the stop, because mm -hmm. the officer, the assumption is, would be making that stop to investigate another, something mm -hmm. else other than the, the, the traffic violation, do you think that would have some positive effects on reducing the stops and reducing disparities? I'm sure that if we ban pretext stops and officers actually follow the, the rules to, to stop pretext stops, you would see a decline in some of these stops, in particular the two most common stops, uh, the, the two highest number stops. I'm sure you would see a decline there. I mean, that's an assumption. I'm not sure, but I, I believe you would see a decline in the number yeah, thank of those you. stops. And, yeah. and, and thank you. I, you know, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I know <laughs> it's hard to research if you don't have the data. Um, uh, two other questions just quickly. So with the equipment violations, the three, three of them anyway, tail lights, brake lights, and uh, objects in the mirror. Mm -hmm. The way the proposed policy currently reads, there would be certain conditions where those sections would still be enforceable, mm -hmm. such as brake lights and tail lights. Totally. The way the policy currently reads, or the proposed policy, um, all the brake lights and tail lights would have to be out. I'm going to ask this, and I think I may know the answer to this, but is there any assumption of the data that we have, whether all the lights were out or whether it would be a partial? So that's not recorded in the data set. Um, so we just don't know. So we assume that it's partial for all of them for the purpose of conducting the analysis because we can't show whether or not some of them would fit under the detail <laughs> or not. Um, that's data that could be recorded in the future uh, if the, the department decided to, um, or maybe capturing some of the narratives. But right now we can only do kind of this rough sketch so the assumption is that of it's almost a thousand, actually it's over a thousand, almost eleven hundred stops, that those are partial, yeah, and would would not be enforceable under the proposed policy. Yes. Okay. And we we just don't know, unfortunately. And the same thing, same question for objects in the mirror. The assumption yep. is that these citations would not have increased the likelihood of some injury or death causing accident. So. That, that's an unknown, that's an assumption. It's a complete well. unknown, yep. Okay. Yeah, so in a lot of these data analysis, because of the limitations in the data, it comes down to a reasonable assumption and kind of the best way to look at the data and present it. Um, we don't have that level of detail currently available to us. Okay. Okay, thank, thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Yanez. Thank you, Vice President, uh, President Elias. <laughs> Uh, good evening, Chief, and thank you for the presentation. It really is uh, helpful to visualize things, attach <laughs> numbers to them, and uh, the fact that you just own this information is great. You should uh, teach a master class on data collection and analysis <laughs> for uh, some of us. Um, and I'm just going to, some of the similar line of questions that uh, Commissioner Obersner Carter was 
asking, but the aggregate total, uh, you know, equipment and non-moving violations, what uh, I summarized was there were 50% for African Americans, 40% for Latinos that were specifically solely for equipment and non-moving violations, right? And these are the ones that you break down in detail and add actual numbers to the hanging and the license Yeah, th those are some of them. There are other equipment or non-moving stops that aren't included in the analysis. Okay. Um, but th that make up, yeah, the 40% of stops for Latino drivers um, and 50% and for black. And I just wanted to make sure I heard this correctly, that for... Out of those 50% uh, stops for equipment or non-moving violations, 56% of those for African Americans resulted in no citation whatsoever. So this is all traffic stops. So 56% of all traffic stops in San Francisco of, among black drivers are not given a citation. So this is beyond moving or equipment. This is every. This is 56% of all traffic stops. Is there a summary just specifically for the equipment and non-moving violations? Uh, I can do that for you. I don't that have would right be now. amazing. <laughs> but I can do it for you. That'd be really helpful <laughs> yeah. if you have those yeah. numbers, just because when you know. When I look at the numbers for Latinos, it says 40% and 39% receive no citation. So mm -hmm. you're saying the 39% is still for the total, not solely for the equipment and non-moving. Yeah, that's just total. Got you. Um, but you and, have and, that number. Yeah, yeah, we have that number. It's very, it's very accessible. Um, we, we could find that very quickly. It'd be great to disaggregate and share yeah. that with us just because the more granular we get, the easier it is to make informed decisions, right? Sure. Very happy um, to. Was there any analysis of the length of time spent on either the ones that received citations or the ones that did not? So I didn't do a, a time of stop analysis. We do have that data available, so you can do that. Um, and I know that can be useful for, for both measuring person's stop time and impact on them, as well as uh, city or SFPD resources used. Um, so we have that data. I didn't do it. That is something that I know that uh, I've been interested in, a cost analysis of how much, you know, time is invested, mm -hmm. how much energy is invested in things that, you know, lead to no citations and lead to adverse consequences and damage to people of color communities, mm -hmm. right? So if you can get someone to work on that number, we <laughs> yeah, would we can, love we can to try. have you back here. <laughs> um, and then a couple other questions. I know you had answered the uh, local ordinance violations. I know you mentioned sleeping in a car is one of them. Are there any others that come to mind that were consistently like identified? Uh, that, that are consistently identified, no. Um, I, I just didn't dig in, but there's, there's plenty of San Francisco-specific traffic laws okay. that could fall under that. Got it. Do you know of a similar analysis in a jurisdiction that disaggregates um, race data by ethnicity the way that you did with the API community and whether that makes a difference on increasing or lowering the disproportionality <laughs> mm -hmm. for African-American or for Latino families. The real reason I ask this is because there is a large Afro-Cuban, Afro-Caribbean mm -hmm. population here as far as I understand. Mm -hmm. We're only collecting perceived mm -hmm. race by the police officers and we're not necessarily reconciling those mm -hmm. numbers. Um, are you aware of any of that? Yeah, I, so 
we just have a lot of data limitations, especially when we're, we're comparing kind of census data population with the data collected by um, officers or others during a traffic stop. The census data does go into slightly more detail among Latino populations, um, but it generally breaks out kind of heritage or ancestry. Um, and so we could find out how many of us are Puerto Rican, how many of us are Mex Mexican, how many of us are Salvadoran, but we can't necessarily, how many of us um, are, are Afro-Cuban in that way because it, it, that data doesn't cross back to race. Now you can look at black and Hispanic identifying. Hispanic is the term the census uses. So you can look right. at black and Hispanic identifying and start breaking those out. Um, similar among the Asian population, we're very limited in our data. Um, the census is trying to kind of catch up to the 21st century, uh, but it struggles to do that. <laughs> um, I've been on that website. Yeah, exactly. And um, and so it's more difficult to break it out. Um, I'm sure there are other cities who have done the best they can uh, to identify kind of racial and ethnic groups beyond what the census does, but we're just so limited in our data. And again, because this is officer perception, it also means that, like you said, people can be misidentified any number of times. It also makes it more difficult to get into greater detail, um, say, of like an Asian subgroup, because if an officer can't necessarily identify the difference between someone of Japanese heritage or Chinese heritage, they're going to flag them as maybe the wrong uh, ethnic group. Yeah. Um, and we see that across racial and ethnic groups. And it's similar, again, for things like LGBTQIA+, other groups that we try to record, trans community, others that we try to record within our RIPA data set, but then the census doesn't reflect it back, the realities of those communities so we're not able to actually assess it in the way that we should. And, uh, but we got work to do in that area for sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, last question is around, um, there was a breakdown of, but you know, I'm not the best at math either, but you know, like 1%, let's say out of the 4,000 stops led to a gun. Do we know, I, in my head, I did, it was a total of about 87 if I used the 1% mm -hmm. as a solid one. Is that the actual number of guns retrieved for all these pretext stops out of the 8,000 or how many ever were accounted for? I don't have the actual number in front of me, but we, we, we could find that out. It's recorded in the data set. SFPD has that data. Um, and this, again, is only categorized by the primary reason for stop. Um, so, but that's accessible data where you could pull it up. Got it. You know, did the search find a gun, yes or no, and then uh, based on those categories. But I think that the percentages is, is if you do the math, you'll get the number. Right. Got it. <laughs> thank you very much. No, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Director Henderson. Thank you. Uh, so I just, uh, a couple of things that I just wanted to point out uh, before I address the presentation specifically. I do feel like this is probably one of the most uh, robust and detailed conversations we've had pending a policy, and it's not lost on me. So I want to acknowledge the reason that I believe we're able to have the discussion like this uh, is because of the data. And the data that's been made available uh, from the department, the data that's been reviewed and evaluated by the commissioners, uh, as well as what's been passed on to the third parties. I, we keep coming back to this being a confirmed part of the solution to moving forward. We can't have a discussion about reform, let alone accountability, without the data. 
the data being collected, the data being analyzed, and then the data being made transparent. And so it, it's a big part of the solution every single time, and I didn't want it lost that how we're having this conversation is different than how we've had conversations in the past where it's not anecdotal, it moves beyond into an evidence-based and informed fact-driven conversation. So I just want to acknowledge that. Before I thank you, Mr. Denny, and before I thank Spur specifically, not just for bringing us this data, not just for analyzing the data, but for also being so clear and specific about race. And I think the intentionality about race is really important, and it's one of the conversations that uh, oftentimes, especially in this context, uh, it's a harder conversation to have, but we appreciate the intentionality there to address uh, communities of color and the impact that policing has in terms of us moving forward and making the best policy. You know, it's as part of addressing pretext stops, I think it's really important to look at the numbers. I, I heard in your presentation that 93, that uh, African Americans are 93% times more likely to receive citations. That's, a, I think it's facts like that that are based on evidence and data that's given to you that I think is really important. Uh, and my question is, that was a long way to get to the question, <laughs> but my question uh, was, aside from the proposed DGO and the analysis that you gave us, thank you, in, sum in summation, is there anything uh, from your analysis or from SPUR regarding your thoughts, ideas, or suggestions and how to directly address the race disparate uh, pretext stops or the data that you've seen. Is there anything that you've seen or have thought about in looking at the data that either was omitted or could be added to the analysis that you did? Well, first, thank you um, for, for your very kind words and also to echo RIPA data and the requirement to collect data on traffic stops has dramatically changed and improved the ability to make evidence-based policy. And I would encourage everyone to use more data and ask for more data in all aspects of policy. Oh, we do. Oh, uh, yeah. We will. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I talk to people across the country. Yeah. <laughs> I talk to people across the country regularly about traffic enforcement, traffic-related data, and, and California is the current gold standard, uh, but we have a lot further to go still. Um, you know, I think that there are racial disproportionality in a very large number of our traffic stops, um, and both in the, the rate of stop and the citation rate. Um, I think that for me, traffic enforcement is in an as a racial justice issue, but an economic justice issue as well. Uh, a very large proportion of the people stopped and ticketed by police are unable to afford those tickets because the cost of those tickets is set by uh, California code. So we have traffic tickets that the, the penalty is $25, but the cost of the ticket is $263. Um, so the added fees over time have a disproportionate impact. Um, I would encourage this commission um, and anybody to look at ways to reduce the cost of citations. Um, this is not answering a disparity question, but it is kind of answering an impact question. There are fines and fees um, that 
the, the county can opt into or opt out of, and I would encourage a reflection on how to opt out of some of those fees, and also join in the advocacy efforts that are happening across the state to reduce the impact of citations and other fines and fees. Um, California has been going through a reckoning in reducing its fines and fees, um, and we've had seen many successes in that area. Um, but I think that we have much further to go, especially as it relates to traffic enforcement, which is the number one way in which people interact with the criminal legal system in California. It costs billions of dollars every year, and that disproportionately impacts low-income and working people. Uh, so I think that um, reducing the financial harms of, of, of traffic enforcement while maintaining road safety is, I think, one of the, the big goals um, that I have, and I would hope that this commission has as well. Um, you know, other, there are many other stops that reflect racial disproportionality. There are many other um, areas of enforcement that, that hit communities of color and lower income communities more than wealthier and whiter communities. Um, and I think the department has spoken about em emphasizing uh, stops related to safety as opposed to stops related to, to other um, areas of enforcement and the commission has emphasized that as well and I think continuing on that path where you focus on road safety as opposed to the kind of minor violations that can result in hundreds if not thousands of dollars in debt that many people in San Francisco are not able to afford you know the bottom 20% of our populations economically uh, in the city makes an average of $16,000 a year so a $500 traffic ticket represents a huge portion of your income um, and uh, renders many people unable to meet their basic needs. Um, so I think any emphasis on that aspect of it will, will lead us in the right direction. That's a great point because I think that, you know, we talk about race and we talk about other things, but we really don't talk about another critical component of this, which is the socioeconomic impact. And when, just like the example you gave, a $500 ticket, and then the fees start incurring and doubling, and for the you know hardworking family, that you know sometimes is rent or food on the table. So what do you choose? Um, so yeah, I think you made a really great point. Thank you for reminding us of that, um, Commissioner Byrne. Thank you, President Elias. Uh, th thank you for the presentation. Um, <clears throat> when I was going through it yesterday. I was just wondering, do you have like statistics as to where like um, African Americans or Latinx people in San Francisco are pulled over? So we can use the. I, I don't have that statistics on me, but but the police department has that data. Um, so every traffic stop made uh, includes an intersection or or an address, and you can map that. And it also includes an indicator of that person's race or ethnicity. So. You know, with the racial disparity involving uh, the African American population, did you know in your spatial analysis, mm -hmm. did you notice anything unusual about that? Yeah, so um, the place where we have the highest number of traffic stops, right, the, the, the disproportionate number of traffic enforcement in our denser neighbors, our more diverse neighborhoods, but not our blackest neighborhoods. Right. That. that yeah. <laughs> yeah. And do you, do you have any explanation as, as to any theory why? Because the data seems to suggest that in in the Bayview Hunters Point area, yeah, and in a, what they a... now call NOPA, but what we used to call the Western Edition, um, and uh, in uh, sunny and again what we used to call Visitation Valley, uh, where where there are uh, large numbers 
of African Americans, there doesn't appear to be what you would expect, which is an orange color on your map. Yeah, so I think what we're seeing is that um, more people are stopped in the denser neighborhoods in downtown, the Mission, and Soma, and other parts. Um, so I think we're coming down to enforcement decisions that the department's making. And why they make those decisions, I think the department is going to have to answer. And you get to my next point about yeah. the mission, because it's only part of the mission where it seems to be. Yes. And again, that's not reflective of of the Latinx community in San Francisco, where it would go farther up. Totally. And again, I, yeah, I mean. So I think it means that, you know, what I would, uh, I think that, the geographic different the geography is not necessarily indicative of officer behavior is what we're seeing right based on that data if we use the spatial analysis and then the data analysis um so where you drive who you are and where you're driving maybe or where you're driving maybe matters less than who you are in our data is i think what you would probably derive um, based on this analysis say that again where you're driving <laughs> uh, who you are matters more than where you're driving Right, but then the western side of the city, the western side yeah. of the city. So I think I think you uh, would you would expect it to whiten out, and then well, so this is yet it's blue, so it seems to be well, people, a safe place to get away with it. If you if I can be, <laughs> I, I would not say that at all. Um, I think that uh, you know people drive all over the city regardless of where they live, and so we do see that reflected. I think the traffic enforcement decisions we're seeing in that spatial analysis is probably that we're doing a lot of enforcement in very dense places that have highway on-ramp and off-ramps that have a lot of drivers and have concerns about okay. pedestrian safety, which okay. is kind of the ideal outcome, right? You want, you want traffic enforcement in places where people could be harmed. Um, but for most of the city, the vast majority of the city, if you look at that map, there's the traffic stops you expect to have there. Um, so in those communities, there's just a normal amount of traffic stops happening in those places. Okay. Yeah. And you, and you did, okay. And then um, my next point. So um, the presumption or is that if there are fewer traffic stops, it will lower racial disparities. That's your conclusion at the end of the presentation? I believe that if there are fewer of these specific stops, it will lower racial disparities. So are you familiar with the preliminary results in the Commonwealth of Virginia where they banned pretextual stops, but at least according to this Center for uh, Public Equity that spoke to us previously, there was no resulting, and I am still shocked at this, but there was no resulting lowering of racial disparities in the remainder of the stops. At least that's what the presentation was. And are you familiar with that? I'm not familiar with that presentation or the analysis done by the Center of Policing Equity, but I, I think that what we see is the driver of racial disparities in San Francisco. Um, they really are driven by those uh, driving that expired or no registration and license plate affixed incorrectly. And so if you were to remove those stops, yeah. you would see a decline. The disproportionality would probably still be there just because black drivers are more likely to be stopped than white drivers, period. But you would see a decline unless officer behavior changed and they, or, or, and they then started pulling people right. over for right. a different reason. 
Right, I would agree with you, and that's yeah. why I'm try having trouble with Virginia, but thank you. Yeah, I mean, it could again be that officers just made different decisions. They still intended to make the stops that they intended to make and then just used a different reason. Um, that's possible. It can be that there was a multitude of reasons that someone was stopped, and so they just switched to the second reason uh, instead of the yeah. first. Um, or it could be, and, you know, there's just so many <laughs> outcomes. No, thank you. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Commissioner Walker. Thank you. Um, just a couple more. Um, again, this is really helpful to look at this data. I think you know we've every report that we've heard presented. <laughs> it's clear there are racial disparities in in these stops, and so the question is, how do we get better? And so one of the things I'd like to know is is the RIPA information. Is there available information as to when the stops occurred during the day? Yep, so there is time of day that you can use. Uh, RIPA doesn't release it, but this, the department does. Okay, I think we've seen some of that. Um, yes, yeah, so you can do veil of to, darkness yeah. analyses. Um, also, I'm, you know, one of, the, one of the issues that we are dealing with too is whatever solution we come up with, what are the consequences on on you know traffic accident mm -hmm. detail as well as pedestrian safety all of that mm -hmm. is there a way to um, is there data available to be able to look at that especially as we may try solutions um, I know that LA is already doing their version of mm -hmm. a pretext stop training and um, awareness in pulling people over um, like Virginia Mm -hmm. is use, use banning specific stops. Um, yeah, so uh, SFCTA uh, releases a Vision Zero traffic fatalities analysis every year, and they uh, include the primary collision factor as well as the California code. None of these stops are included in any of the primary reasons for a, a, a collision factor in those analysis from the year 2014 to 2021. So these stops just aren't, aren't popping up I mean, in that, that data and set? I mean, that's a challenge to me because I, I walk everywhere mm -hmm. in the city, and I've witnessed, you know, people being hit mm -hmm. by, you know, no signal, mm -hmm. right turns. Totally. It's not clear to me that we're collecting that data well enough anywhere. Yeah, I think I'm that not, could totally be yeah. true. It may be that the, these agencies are not at capturing the right data. This is also, I think, reflected in police reports from yeah. those collisions. And so the department makes a determination or the responding officer makes a determination on what the, the causal factor was. Um, but based on the data we have, uh, which the city publishes, they're just not, it's not a, a factor. It, it would be interesting, especially as we go forward, to make sure we're collecting it, especially around shared sidewalks. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't even have to <laughs> go over. I mean, I'm sure all of us have been, you know, affected by scooters and bikes on the sidewalk. You mm -hmm. know, those are things that are concerning and that I've heard most about from, from folks. Um, this question, I, I wonder if I can ask a question to you, Chief, about the difference, I mean, the, the data that seems to indicate more uh, black drivers are pulled over for uh, violations but not cited, do you have any sense about that? I mean, that's, kind of, that's an interesting set of data. Commissioner, thanks. Yeah, it's, it's anecdotal, and, and as Mr. Denny said, I mean, until we really understand which 
stops are truly pretexts, mm -hmm. and I know there's language in the policy to try to determine that, um, and which ones are not, in addition to the reason that officers aren't citing. I mean, I've heard officers in our discussions about this uh, say that, you know, they give, they give some violators a break depending on the, depending on what's going on. Yeah. So, uh, that's not at all uncommon, but it's really hard to vet those things out because there's no data to really uh, that we can put our hands on. You know, I do know that it happens, uh, and then we have the issue of pretext stops to investigate other things that mm -hmm. may cause a warning on the traffic enforcement itself, I see. but leads into some other type of investigation that either yields arrest or contraband being confiscated. So. Um, there, there, there's a lot of data that I think we do have to call through, and I appreciate the uh, comments that we need to dig really deeper into this, because I do think we do. Yeah, so we I really understand it. To, to sort of reiterate what um, Paul was saying, um, especially, I mean, obviously, determining what the issues are, it, that is important, but also determining if our solutions are successful requires very detailed data that includes all of this and you know so designing the data in the future and making sure our system and our training captures that is really I think a big part of what we need to talk about yeah, that is correct and, and and just just to note to answer your question I know there's proposed language about investigative questioning on traffic stops that I I do believe will help us determine what is a pretext and what is not. Mm -hmm. If you know, as was stated by Mr. Denny, uh, we have to follow the policy. But I do think, given uh, the ability to to check with body worn camera and all that, I think we're in a much better place to understand what is pretext and what's not with some of the language. And uh, I think LA is doing most of their solutions based on that, on sort of. A protocol about what people are supposed to do when they pull somebody over when it escalates um, I think it would be good to get maybe a presentation on what those cities are doing specifically um, to see if we can learn from them thank you Carter Overstone sorry I cut off your last name I checked in with Vice President uh, Carter, and he gave me an opportunity to ask a follow-up question to Ms. Walker's question uh, of the chief. So for those that do not end uh, up or result in a citation or detention or anything, are we capturing a justification for why those are not being cited currently? I don't think we're capturing it in in a way that will call a pool good data. I mean, in the stop systems, if you give somebody a, a warning, or in, in the CAD system, you can dispo is you know giving a warning. But I think we need harder uh, ways to collect and, and and report on that data that's more accurate and, and more reliable. Give us an opportunity to also just improve um, the training around that element, right? And to be able to create parameters for that. So I just thought that's an interesting point and something we should look further into. Thank you. 
if I, if I might just add, um, one of the data that's not released publicly the department does have is year-making model of vehicles. That's not released publicly because of privacy concerns. It's used often as a proxy for economic status. So future analyses uh, could use that data as a proxy for economic status, and you could track behavior um, by citation or outcome uh, based on that. It's not a perfect proxy. It exists, but it's not perfect because very rich people sometimes drive very bad cars, sometimes the inverse, um, but it is data that could be used. Um, just a couple of follow-up questions for me. Um, thanks for your patience. Um, one of my colleagues expressed befuddlement that um, black people are stopped disproportionately, but yet uh, stops are not concentrated in neighborhoods uh, that are, have disproportionately black residents. Um, so I just wanted to ask, uh, one, one thing that we hear sometimes is that racial disparities are um, driven not necessarily by implicit bias, but by deployment patterns. So sometimes we hear, oh, we're, we're just sending more officers to high crime neighborhoods, and those neighborhoods happen to have a higher percentage of people of color. Um, given that stops are not concentrated in black neighborhoods, um, would you agree that, that that fact undermines this deployment rationale that, that we hear sometimes? I mean, having not looked at the crime data by neighborhood, I think what it shows, right, is that the black neighborhoods are not seeing a disproportionately high number of traffic stops, which means enforcement decisions in those neighborhoods are very different than enforcement decisions in other neighborhoods. Um, so I worked with a group of graduate students last year looking at traffic stops in, in three cities and doing a deep dive and then conducting a number of qualitative interviews with experts in those places. And what many of those interviews yielded was a sense among impacted people, experts, community leaders, and others, was that um, enforcement changed based on who you are and what neighborhood. And so there were places and neighborhoods where people felt as though they were trying to be driven out of those neighborhoods by enforcement actions. Um, so I think that there's an indicator there that it could be in some places, um, I'm thinking specifically of an interview with someone in LA who said, we just feel like black people aren't allowed here. So I think there are instances like that that could be informing officer behavior. Um, I don't know that they are here at all, but I think it's a, it's a commonly reported experience and view. Great, thanks. Can I just connect the dots on that? Because you mentioned that and thank you for that answer, but it also raises an issue uh, that Commissioner Byrne was raising before, uh, because when we talked about Virginia as one of the criticisms, one of the things that we didn't talk about, but I think is really important, is that it did result in a massive reduction in stops in black and brown communities, and we're not measuring the value of that in and of itself, mm -hmm. and that ties to where the actions take place. I just wanna make sure we're connecting the dots of the value of all of these things, because we aren't valuing specifically and clearly the impact of what these effects are on the black and brown communities, even when there's no uh, police enforcement and even when there's no contraband taken, the cost on communities, specifically communities of color, is part of what we're discussing, even though that's the inverse of the negative repercussion. I just, just want to make sure that I... Yeah, I, I wasn't going to address that. Virginia Sorry. because 
it's not germane to the presentation. And we, we already discussed last week why the Virginia policy is uh, not comparable at all to what we're doing here. So I'll, I'll, I'll spare Jacob another. Uh, and does not include accountability as part of the problem. One of the many differences. Um, just, just one other follow-up, uh, uh, Jacob, which is uh, you had an exchange with Commissioner Walker uh, on uh, traffic safety. I just wanted to be clear. I heard what you said, that none of the infractions on the banned list were identified as a primary factor of crashes and injuries on our roadways. Is that right? Yeah. Great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. All right. Are you tired of us yet? No, happy. Uh-oh. <laughs> I got well, time. Good. I'm glad, and I'm glad you're having such fun that I'm going to ask that you come back because I think that <laughs> not only um, can you teach people how to do a presentation, but you do great PowerPoints, and I really think that you are instrumental in helping us digest the data that we get. So thank you again, and no, I thank look you. forward to seeing you again. For free. Thank you all. <laughs> <laughs> all right, next item. Oh, actually, sorry, forgot that part. I've gone for one week and look at don't know how to act. <laughs> Sergeant, I'm going to let you take this over. For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item two, please approach the podium or press star three. Sure. Uh, first of all, I want to commend the uh, commissioners on their questions. They were good questions and, and a useful study. Um, I do think that there's some other uh, uh, questions that ought to be asked. Um, <laughs> But before I, I, I talk about that, I, I want to say two things that came out. One, that um, perhaps more training I, I is needed, as uh, Commissioner uh, Yanis mentioned. And, um, you know, if you reduce the financial harm and the fines, uh, uh, our, our, our position at Stop Crime SF is reduce the, the, the financial harm and do better training. Don't reduce stops. So I, I would also mention that there's, uh, there's a Chicago study where they reduced stops and they increased traffic cameras and disparities, racial disparities in increased. You're probably familiar with that. Um, I, I, I also think it, it's a good question that to ask is how um, they, the, the study, how, how, did you, how do you think that um, disparities, uh, how do you think race is determined by the, uh, the, the officer who's ma making the, the traffic stop? Uh, those of you who have been on, on drive-alongs, I imagine you know it's very difficult to do that. Um, um, the, there was a, a allusion to the daylight versus nighttime uh, stops. You know, it, it's virtually impossible to distinguish r r race uh, from from uh, at night. And uh, some other studies have shown that disparities are not like this. Uh, uh, it doesn't change a lot. Um, finally, uh, we talked about downtown area. That's where, you know, uh, uh, if we had data on whether these are our stops are of people who are drivers coming from the East Bay, coming from, from elsewhere, from out of town, and, and going downtown, that's the population to look at, not the population of the residents, since you know, we have more employees in San Francisco than we have residents in 2019, not during the pandemic. Uh, finally, I would urge a study of... Thank you, sir. Then you know if you compare the data to the data you got here today, a survey, rather. Thank you. 
Thank you for your comment. I would suggest that you, um, any additional questions, please um, email them to the police commission so that we can probably answer them offline. With respect to the ethnicity question and the data, RIPA gives guidance to officers on how they should be collecting that data. And in fact, oftentimes Latino populations are misrepresented in the data because they are categorized in the category of white rather than Latino. Um, and so there is that issue. And then Chief, was there anything else to add? No, not, nothing else. Well, there is one thing. I know that, that categorization has been <coughs> an ongoing issue with a lot of our um, data discussions over, the, over, the, over, many, over at least five years. Mm -hmm. So uh, I wrote down uh, Commissioner Carter Robestone's ask about the Pacific Islanders and Asian, but it, it is a bigger discussion than that because the way we track data and the way we're required to report it, if we arbitrarily change the way we track data, it throws a lot of things off. So. Much broader discussion uh, that Department of Technology and all the stakeholders have been involved in, and um, I hope we get to a better place. And I think that, that we're headed in that direction, but we're not there yet. Yeah, great news because I think those are the last of the DOJ recommendations was antiquated systems, yeah. and you went to the Board of Supervisors to ask for money to be able to update the antiquated systems to allow the department to address those issues. I would also suggest in that conversation we add Commissioner Giannis's concern, which allows for the misclassification of the Latino and Hispanic um, ethnicities as well. Yeah, yeah, but just to reiterate, it's not just the SFPD, it's the entire criminal justice system that, re that relies on this data, so we can't make those changes in a vacuum. I have faith. All right, next item, Sergeant. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. Good evening, Commissioners. Director Henderson and Chief Scott, Wesley Saber, Senior Policy Manager for Glide and the Coalition to End Bias Stop. Thank you to Jacob Denny and Spur, too, for the thorough analysis. This presentation, as well as previous ones to the Commission about racial disparities and traffic stops, reveal the heartbreaking reality of structural racism and policing in San Francisco and across the country. Similar to tonight's presentation, the Stanford Open Policing Project concluded SFPD officers require less suspicion to search black and Latinx drivers and white drivers, and that this double standard is evidence of discrimination. SFPD are stopping people without probable cause, conducting racial profiling, resulting in well-documented generational harms. Disproportionately conducting baseless searches suggests that SFPD officers subject certain groups to higher levels of scrutiny, and data from the 2022 Ripper Report supports this conclusion. This disparate treatment is not a recent phenomena, and it's not going to end on its own. But this status quo can change, and this body has the authority to do so. Other jurisdictions have implemented policies that limit pretext stops, and they've seen dramatic improvements in outcomes, as well as no negative implications for public safety, including in Virginia, as was explained during last Wednesday's meeting. This commission does not need more data. You don't need more time. The commission has received a parade of overwhelming factual evidence from subject matter experts, and we expect that each of you will help ensure that further perpetuation of false narratives will rightly be put to rest and that action will be taken to end pretext stops. Other cities, counties, and states have demonstrated that there's a way forward, and it's time for San Francisco to join this nationwide movement to both racially, uh, to racial justice and public safety. Thank you. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. Good evening, uh, commissioners. My name is Carolyn Goosen, and I'm calling as a member of the Coalition to End Racially Biased Stops. I'm a longtime city employee, resident of San Francisco, public school mother, and member of the queer community. 
I first wanted to appreciate Jacob Denny and Spur, um, which is a very reasoned think tank in San Francisco for the extremely thorough presentation and for ensuring that this campaign to end these racially biased stops supported by over 100 organizations in San Francisco is rooted in data and evidence-based research. I just wanna briefly repeat some of the numbers that were shared uh, that really prove beyond a reasonable doubt that these racially biased stops are fishing expeditions that do not result in any improvement in safety on the streets, do not result in less traffic deaths, and that just lead to harm, generational trauma, and a waste of our taxpayer resources. If you are black, there is a one in 32 chance of being stopped for a traffic stop in San Francisco. If you're white, it's a one in 300 chance. Less than 1% of these stops lead to finding a gun. Less than 1% of these stops lead to arrest. Um, this is not a radical change being proposed, the policy in front of you. It is very actually limited uh, and very reasonable and focusing really on the lowest level stops, the types of stops that are least related to public safety. San Francisco has a commitment to Vision Zero to end traffic stops, and nothing in this policy impacts Vision Zero in any way. Instead, as was mentioned in the, in the presentation, the policy will address the fact that clearly our Black, Latino, and Pacific Islander residents, neighbors, families, and friends are stopped for reasons other than the traffic violation that is a pretext. It wasn't a traffic issue, which is why there are not actually cited for traffic safety issues. Um, I really appreciate the questions that are being asked here, um, but I really urge. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. Thank you. Uh, a lot of people have talked about this evidentiary data and how accurate it is. Really, there's a lot of assumptions, as, as even commissioners have admitted. Uh, this is one year. I would ask that this data will be four years old soon, and that you look at more longitudinal data. You see what happens in 2020 then you make your decisions. In terms of assumptions, there's a lot of questions about why African-Americans are pulled over the most, but have in certain infractions and then have the least amount of uh, citations given to them. A lot of assumptions made. The data doesn't show that, uh, reasons why. Perhaps it's because police officers are empathetic. Perhaps police officers don't wanna be accused of racial profiling or discrimination, so they let the citation go with a warning. <laughs> the broader picture is that there's no data about socioeconomic levels of these of these pullovers. And maybe there's races and ethnicities in lower socioeconomic levels that are overrepresented. And those levels can't afford to keep their car maintained or pay for registration or repairs. So unless you do that, maybe people in certain socioeconomic levels are being pulled over more and there's just happens to be certain races that are overrepresented in that. And finally, to the police officers who are gonna to have to enforce these ridiculous uh, restrictions, I would ask you, forced to put down race or ethnicity, simply put mixed. It's accurate that in a day everybody's of a mixed race in one way or another. Don't put yourself in the position where you're gonna to continue to be challenged about profiling, about racial discrimination. Just put mixed and let the data fall where they pay. Thank you. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. 
Hello, my name is Samina Usman. I'm the Senior Government Relations Coordinator for the Council on American Islamic Relations. Uh, thank you again for uh, the presentation. You've heard from a number of uh, community groups that are part of the over 100 community organizations that are in support of passing some legislation um, to end these biased stops. You know, we've heard from people who have been, who have experienced it themselves um, and the harm uh, that it has caused both to them and their families for being stopped for something that is, you know, so very minor, even to the point where people have been stopped with uh, guns, you know, pointed at them. I know, you know, one of my friends, she was stopped because she had a tazbeh hanging from her, like a prayer bead that are hanging from her rear view mirror. And, you know, everybody, you know, was, it was just a very uh, tense uh, situation with the officers. And the only way that they really got out of that situation is because she had a family member who was part of the police force. I mean, not everybody has a family member who's part of the police force who's hopefully going to be able to, you know, get them out of that situation, and nor should they have to. You know, people should not be profiled at all. Um, we need to end these, uh, you know, these bias stops. Um, and and there are, it doesn't mean that we're um, legalizing whatever these minor infractions are. No, they're not. It's just meaning that they should not be stopped for, um, based on that, they should be stopped only if there's like some harm that's going to be caused, if there's a security, uh, you know, reason for that. So, you know, I urge you to move this forward. It's been well over a year that we've been um, coming to you and discussing this um, with you. We really need to get this whole thing started and be able to vote yes on it and then be able to, you know, get it over to the board. So I urge you to uh, get this moving. I know we have now it's been pushed to next year, but I mean, let's not delay it any further. Thank you so much. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. Uh, yeah, good evening, Commissioners. Uh, Chief Scott and Executive Director Hennison, this is Deputy Public Defender Brian Cox. I just want to call to kind of make two points. Um, I think the presentation first for Mr. Ding was phenomenal and I think paints an accurate picture of what we're seeing. And it does so in a way that leaves very little question as to what the solution should be. And I think that's kind of been the North Star for this policy all along is to reduce the racial disparities. And I think that, that that has to be the goal moving forward. And I think that what's on offer, this policy, is a very measured, reasoned approach to, to get us there, to actually reduce the disparities. And I think that the second point is that it really needs to focus our conversation moving forward around this issue. The commissioners had long time to digest the data the arguments, the facts, the briefing, it's been, as Samita pointed out, more than a year. We don't need more time. We don't need more delay. The commission needs to vote on this. I think the public deserves that. And the people who are subject to these stops and experiencing these harms that talk about it at the various presentations and community meetings, they voice that. The commission needs to listen to that and take that seriously. Thank you. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. Hello, my name is Susan Buckman. I live in District 6, and I volunteer with Welcome to Spirit and Black Community. I do want to agree with Brian Cox that this has been a really good presentation, and also agree with, um, I think it's Brian Saver, that there is a lot of misinformation going around. And I do think presentation has been heard by these people who are being told misinformation about what the pretext stop DGO is about 
it might have helped educate them. But unfortunately, because of human nature, when you pull the deal 9.01 off, you lost 99% of your audience. So you're left with the usual suspects that already know the information and either agree with it or disagree with it. So I do think it's a lost opportunity that you have not been able to educate the general public. But then I would say that the police department, the POA, are pretty happy that you pulled it because it delays putting this forward. But also, um, by pulling it so quickly in the meeting, everyone who might have benefited from that presentation who had been miseducated by the POA and the police is not hearing this information. They're not hearing the narrative corrected. So I think that's a missed opportunity and probably a deliberately missed opportunity by certain people who pushed to have this removed off the agenda. Thank you. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. Yes, my name is Alice Xavier. Uh, we're always hearing the city talking about going, focusing on vision zero, uh, no death, especially immediately after someone gets struck by a car. There's a, uh, there's a big fatality um, like there was on Cesar Chavez the other day. But you propose to go against public safety by ignoring these violations um, of stop signs, of, of running stop signs, stop lights, not driving with lights on, even in the fog. How is this not going to uh, cause any uh, collisions? Of course they will. Uh, the commissioners, I don't think, they're authorized to, to change California law, are they? Do you think the city will incur lawsuits due to these non-enforcement of California vehicle codes? Um, I just see, I see problems. Um, I agree with the, the uh, tonight's uh, suggestion that tickets need to be lowered. But I think it's obvious the focus should be on officer training and accountability, not on ignoring traffic laws and tossing out California vehicular laws. Um, I urge the uh, commission to vote no on this. Thank you. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. The commissioners, at the last presentation, uh, for some reason, uh, uh, I was left uh, from giving public comment. Mm -hmm. What I feel about pretext and um, stops is that we have to have a matrix that we follow. So when the Human Rights Commission came out and uh, they really did not have uh, a lot of data, uh, that presentation was null and void. And many of the commenters said so, and so do I. Now, this gentleman may talk about Visitation Valley, but how is he looking at it? Is he looking at it as a district, District 10, or is he looking at it as a precinct? So if you look at it as a precinct, you have Bayview as well as Excelsior monitoring that area. So there again, you have to have a metric, but you also have to have standards. The other thing is that these presentations come again and again and again. It's like beating a horse dead and reviving it. 
that should stop. We have to be aware that our time is precious and we need to move forward. We need a good policy, we need training, and we need to reduce the fines. And that's what I got to say. Don't waste our time. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. Oh, hey, you guys must be super busy tonight. Uh, I got to order, um, see, I want one extra large pepperoni sausage, pesto, olives, Starbucks. green onion, um, some other stuff that you guys, no anchovies, but uh, bell peppers, uh, Canadian bacon. Okay, that's one, and then the other one, I just want a medium pepperoni, well done, and uh, 10 piece wings, that's it. Oh, oh, eight piece box. Thank you, caller. President Lysla is the end of public comment. Thank you. <laughs> And thank you, Mr. De Costa. I appreciate you. No, but is that pizza coming? Um, Chief, you are, well, well, actually, see, Sergeant, I don't know how to behave. Can you call the line? And then I'm going to. Yes. Chief, no, actually, it's yeah. consent. False alarm, Chief. You have a few minutes to. My timer on. There you go. Line item three, consent calendar, receive and file action. SFPD, SB 1421 and SB 16 monthly report. And DPA, SB 1421 and SB 16 monthly report. Great. Can I get a motion? Motion to receive. Second. Sergeant. On the motion, Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. Vice President Carter Overstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Overstone is yes. And President Elias? Yes. President Elias is yes. You have seven yeses. Line item four, Chief's Report Discussion. Weekly crime trends and public safety concerns. Provide an overview of offenses, incidents, or events occurring in San Francisco having an impact on public safety. Commission discussion on unplanned events and activities the Chief describes will be limited to determine whether to calendar for a future meeting. Chief Scott. Chief, you have big shoes to fill. I mean, he did 50 slides within the time <laughs> limit. I think right. you only got two pieces of paper there, so. Okay. I'm gonna see, let's see. Off and running. Thank you, President Elias, Vice President Carter, Commission, um, I, and Sergeant Youngblood. Thank you, Executive Director Henderson. I will start this week's report with crime trends. Uh, violent crime leads with a 6% increase from this time last year. Um, that's a difference of about 300 crimes, just short of 300 crimes. Property crimes, there's a 4% increase from this time last year. That's a difference of about 1,600 crimes. In total, we are up. 4% on part one or serious uh, crimes, which is a difference of um, just less than 2,000 crimes. In terms of our property crimes, I'll just break that down first. We're up, um, as I said, 4%. Burglars are down 21%, so we will most likely, in all likelihood, end the year with a double-digit decrease in burglaries. Overall, larceny is up 10% which is trending downward from where it was earlier in the year. Auto burglaries is, is up 6%, which has also trended downward from earlier this year. The violent crimes or homicides are up 2%, and I'll give that detail in a second. Um, rapes are up 3%, robberies are up 5%, and assaults are up 8%. Human trafficking down 47%. As I said, homicides are up 2%. That's a total of, of 50 
53 homicides compared to 52 this time last year. Our overall clearance rate is 63% year to date. In terms of shootings, there's been 172 shooting incidents resulting in 195 victims of gun violence. 34 of our gun violence shooting victims have been resulted in homicides or they were victims of homicides. And there's been 161 non-fatal shooting victims this year. Our total homicides uh, related to firearms are down 15% year to date, 34 compared to 40 last year. Our shootings are down 4%, these are non-fatal shootings, uh, 161 compared to 168 this time last year, with a total reduction of 6% in total gun violence, 195 compared to 208 this time last year. Weapon seizures, uh, we have 1,004 for the year. That's a 4% decrease over this time last year. Of those, uh, ghost guns account for 163, which is three more than uh, 2021. In terms of uh, significant incidents, there were a couple of, several shootings uh, over this past week. Um, Tenderloin, Mission Southern, and out of the three shootings, for the four shootings in the reporting period, one has resulted in an arrest. We also had a homicide, a stabbing homicide that resulted in, in uh, an arrest over the period. In that case, uh, will be presented or has been presented to the district attorney's office. One thing that I've been reporting on, we've had multiple bomb threats uh, over this past year, and this has been an issue not only in our city, but across the region and across the country. These bomb threats are, have been made to public institutions, schools, and, and other public institutions, elected officials, and um, there is a lot of uh, many law enforcement agencies across the nation that are working with our federal partners to try to figure out where these threats are coming from. In San Francisco, we have not yet solved that, but we are working with partners in the region and federal partners because they are very disruptive, and we have to take those threats seriously. I want to talk a little bit about um, what we're doing uh, for the holiday season um, in terms of our public messaging on uh, just being safe and vigilant. We also are, are running um, theft abatements in problematic locations across the city. We're working with retailers and their security teams to try to curb some of uh, what we've seen over the recent years with our rampant thefts in our retail establishments. So our operations are actually uh, going pretty well, uh, very well actually. We made a number of arrests in these abatements and presenting those cases to the district attorney's office. Uh, so we will continue that through the holiday season and beyond and we will have to adjust our staffing of course to sustain that. But definitely we want to let people know that those crimes, whether they're misdemeanor thefts or felony thefts or devastating to our retailers and our, our small business owners and uh, this department will work with our community members, small business owners and large businesses to hold people accountable. So that's an ongoing strategy uh, that I'm happy to report that we've had some success on. There are also um, just a couple of, of more items and I will bring this to a close. There um, was one fatal traffic collision during this reporting period that occurred on December 6 at 10:19 p.m. A vehicle hit a pedestrian pedestrian in the area of Geneva and Naples, 
witness report that the, victims, the victim was standing in the middle of, of the island in the roadway when a vehicle approached. The pedestrian all of a sudden entered the street in front of the vehicle and was struck uh, and unfortunately did not survive their injuries. The driver uh, remained at scene and that investigation is not to believe to be criminal. Uh, significant arrest for the period. Uh, we had a robbery arrest uh, that I'd like to talk about. This was a robbery series. On December 4th, 2022, the employee of a store in the 1900 block uh, of Lombard Street was robbed at gunpoint. On December 7th, another employee was robbed in the 2600 block of Lombard Street at gunpoint. The subject involved matched uh, descriptions in both incidents. The investigation identified a subject who was located in a vehicle in the Northern District on December 7th. As officers attempted to stop the vehicle, subject fled toward Oakland where uh, they were involved in a crash. The subject was interviewed and booked for two counts of robberies with a weapon and several other charges. The subject had prior arrest for uh, 10851, which was driving a stolen vehicle, as well as narcotics arrest in, in previous, uh, previous arrests. Also, uh, I talked about the homicide on Marcus Street, the stabbing that resulted in the homicide. On October 11th, the stabbing occurred at the 200 block of Marcus Street in which the victim eventually succumbed to his injuries. The investigation led to the identification of a subject and on December 8th, that subject was located and taken into custody by officers in the 900 block of Bryant Street. The subject was booked for the homicide. And Commissioner, that is my report. Uh, happy to answer any questions. Thank you, Chief. Vice President Carter Overstone. Uh, thank you, President Elias. Thank you, Chief, for that report. Um, I, Chief, I wanted to ask you uh, about a series of articles that was recently published about the Department Operations Center. Um, the report basically outlined that, um, I think it said 56 officers have been sent there in the last six years on <coughs> the article terms, a chief's order that uh, many of the folks sent there are sent there while their disciplinary hearings are being adjudicated. And I think the article said that we spent $17 million on those officers' salaries while they perform uh, what sounds like ministerial type of duties. Um, <clears throat> just, yeah, just wanted to ask a, a couple clarifying points on that just to understand um, the, the operations center a bit better. Um, so the department spokesperson in the article mentioned that folks get sent to the operations center for reasons other than discipline. Um, and just was curious um, if, you, if you don't have the exact number, that's fine, but just ballpark, you know, the, the, the article says 56 were sent there over the last six years. Your guess, you know, how many of those were not for discipline? And then if you could just provide some examples of reasons other than discipline that someone might be sent there. Thank you, uh, Commissioner, for that question. So the, first of all, the Department Operations Center, there are officers that are assigned there on reassignment, and there are officers <coughs> that are assigned there because they sought that assignment, and there's a mixture of sworn and non-sworn uh, personnel at the Department Operations Center. Um, officers have restrictions in their duties for a variety of reasons, including medical conditions, including uh, personal reasons that um, some officers 
requests to work different assignments because of whatever is going on in their lives. So there are a number of those reasons that a person can be reassigned, not only to the Department Operations Center, but other assignments. Um, and at the DOC, there are a variety of those issues that come to play. Um, one thing that I, I do want to point out, since you mentioned the article, you know, this notion of the department having uh, rubber rooms, uh, which in my opinion is a very disrespectful and derogatory term. Um, we don't have rubber rooms. You know, um, the chief of police has the authority to reassign and make personnel decisions with the department and, or in the department and we have to abide by our MOUs, uh, legal processes, labor laws when we make those those assignments or when I make those assignments. So it's a matter of whatever the restrictions are, whatever the conditions that causes a person to be reassigned, whether that's a personal request or some other issue that's going on, uh, the decision has to be made where to assign that person to. Unless they're suspended or terminated, they have to be paid. So the notion of how much taxpayers, you know, dollars is spent on personnel who are, who are working I really don't know how to answer that because we have to assign these employees uh, in some assignment and they are entitled to due process. So I just want to be very clear for the public because I think you know those types of stories of a waste of taxpayers' money really ignore the, the legal issues, the personnel issues, the legal agreements that the department is bound to uphold. You have to pay employees, you have to assign them somewhere and whether it's the DOC or some other assignment, they have to be paid. So. There's a number of reasons, but I don't want people working the DOC to be stigmatized that this is a, quote unquote a rubber room or some place where we put employees who can't function because that is the furthest thing from the truth and uh, something that I want to make sure that the public understands uh, that is really disrespectful and wrong. Thank you, Chief. Yeah, I was wondering if you could, you could s just you, you, it, sounds, it sounds like you mostly addressed that, but yeah, I did want to give you an opportunity to say, um, you know, I think the department spokesperson called the term rubber room inflammatory, derogatory. Um, yeah, and just wanted to give you an opportunity to explain a little bit why why that is, why the department takes issue with that term specifically. Thank, thank you for allowing me that time. Uh, rubber room is a term, and, and for those of you that aren't familiar with that term, if you do an engine search, it refers to a person basically in a psychiatric facility that's put in a padded room for psychiatric, psychi psychiatric reasons. Um, and that term has morphed throughout different industries. For instance, you know, there was a term that frequently used to be used in, in the law enforcement in industry of a rubber gun squad. Somebody who needed some help or, or they had something going on and the gun was um, they were restricted from using the firearm. And so this term, this term is derogatory. And for anybody that you know, is familiar with you know, mental health conditions or had somebody that they care about um, either in a mental health facility or you know, struggling from that, I think that's a very offensive term. And I don't want that term associated with any part of this police department because it, it, it is just that and it's demeaning to the employees that are working these assignments. Great, thanks, Chief. And then just to clarify, don't need to provide exact numbers, but just if you have a ballpark sense, what proportion of the DOC are 
sworn members that are there during the pendency of their uh, discipline cases versus folks that are there for other reasons? Yeah, but it's less than half, uh, less, less than half of the total personnel. So we do have professional staff and non-sworn. We have sworn um, and currently less than half. And that, that ebbs and flows depending on who's working the DOC and uh, what assignments or what people are reassigned to. But it, it's less than half of the employees that are there are there for reasons because of restrictions or some uh, matter that's pending where they have restricted duties. Okay, great. Thanks, Thank Chief. Um, want to ask you about one other issue. I think I maybe read about it on Saturday or perhaps Friday um, there, uh, about a, a pretty big sideshow in the city around the area of the Embarcadero. Um, and I did watch Commander Walsh's comments that he made to the media. Um, and I guess my, my broad question is it sounded like there were some questions about why the department did not intervene while the sideshow was going on. And um, just want to be clear, this, this question, yeah, just want to be clear that, well, I guess maybe let, let me break this down, two-part question. One, what, what efforts did the department make to apprehend the suspects after the, um, after the sideshow took place? Because I certainly understand that it's not always you can be putting officers and the public in danger when you intervene in the middle of, of something. But I think there's, there's, so I, I totally understand that. But I just also want to understand, because I feel like folks maybe don't see this, you know, what are the types of things the department does to try to apprehend suspects after? And did that happen in this case? Yeah, um, so with that particular incident, there were approximately 200 cars involved. The department's strategy over the past two years and, and, and how we have trained and instructed officers, if we have a, a one of those events, sideshow, we refer to them as stunt driving events. Um, there are two lieutenants that are assigned to the stunt driving response unit full time. Um, and there's also a sergeant assigned full time. The rest of the response is dependent on who's on duty. So resources have to be rallied once the sergeant, you know, calls for the resources. Um, officers come from various parts of the city, all 10 district stations sometimes will contribute to that response. And they have to get there, number one. Secondly, then they assemble and they do whatever is needed. Our primary focus is to stop the dangerous behavior. So we try to break these, these shows up and, and flush people out, which actually we're, we've gotten pretty good at. But the issue that I think you're speaking of the way we respond, if one or two officers responds and there's hundreds of cars, uh, that is a situation that you don't, we don't commit officers to go in there, try to take action. Um, I, I can tell you from experience, and including personal experience, um, oftentimes officers are surrounded, shot at, things thrown at them, bricks, bottles, fireworks, and the like, and it just creates a situation that will lead to uh, the potential of an officer ball shooting and other types of things when you are surrounded like that. Um, a better response is to get the appropriate resources and then either break them up and flush them out. And when that happens, which is what happened um, with this particular event, what they often do, the people involved, is they splinter. So we had people going all over the city. 200 cars may turn into five or six different sideshows in other parts of the city. And 
what we do is we follow them. We, if we know where they go, and oftentimes it's some of the same uh, places, uh, just based on the intersection and the terrain, we will assign officers there and wait on them. And oftentimes that deters the other sideshows from occurring, which is what happened that particular night. We were able to uh, chase away people from setting up in places that we know they, they set up. Um, and then after the fact, I believe this answers part of your question, we continue to investigate those cases. We, we try to identify the vehicles. If we have identifiable information, license plates, vehicle descriptions, we have very good partnerships with surrounding agencies who have the same issue. And we have impounded a number of cars after <coughs> the fact uh, when we can prove that they were in, in those, those uh, sideshow events. So we go and we seize them after the fact. I think this year the numbers uh, that Commander Walsh, Walsh quoted was, I believe, 19, 18 or 19 year to date. We have, I believe, 26 other investigations where that's where we're headed if we get the requisite evidence. And that's been our response um, to really work hand in hand with legislation that our city and county passed a couple of years ago that allows for a 15 or 30 day impound on uh, cars involved in side shows. So our strategy is the short term to break them up, prevent them from splintering around, splintering around the city rather. And then the long term, if we don't make arrests or uh, confiscate cars on the spot, we will follow up. And we have been do doing that and have had some success. Yeah, let me just ask you that that number, and I don't mean this as a criticism at all, but that number sounds like a small number relative to, you know, to the total number of cars uh, involved in these sideshows over the course of a year. I mean, you said there was 200 just, just tonight and we've impounded, I think you said in the twenties. Um, and maybe that's, that makes sense because we don't want to put officers and the public at risk and it's more important to break things up, but just, yeah, curious to get your thoughts on one, whether how you, how you view that number, our, our apprehension rate. Um, if that, if that's, if we should, if that's, a good number if we if we think there's room for improvement or this it doesn't make sense to commit more resources because there's other more important things i'm just curious to get your your thoughts on that well uh, it's it's progress from where we were two years ago before we started doing this particular strategy definitely it's progress and word gets out i mean people know that san francisco t is using that strategy word gets out um what makes it challenges challenging is word gets out and people um conceal their identity. You know, many of the cars, they take the place off. They do other things to conceal the identity of the cars and people are masked up and all that. So it does take some work to identify these cars after the fact. Um, in terms of apprehension, the practice is when we come, typically people scatter in the four winds. Our pursuit policy is very, very, um, exact on what officers are allowed to pursue and what they're not. Sideshow, they're not allowed to pursue. So if we don't <coughs> have some other tactic, we've, you know, we have used spike strips and those types of things in certain situations when it's appropriate. And spike strips is basically use, using force. Um, but we have to do that thoughtfully and we have to do that smartly and make sure we don't put other members of the public in danger when we do that. So. Yes, do I want to see more? Absolutely, I want to see more, but I also want to make sure that we're thoughtful and we really weigh public safety. These shows are dangerous, quite no ifs, ands, or buts about it, but I think our response 
is a lot more organized. It's a lot more methodical than what we've done in the past. And hopefully we'll see additional impounds and seizures both on the spot and after the fact. Great. Thanks, Chief. That's everything for me. Commissioner Benedicto. <clears throat> Thank you, President Elias. Thank you, Chief, for that report. Um, I wanted to also start by discussing that uh, article in the San Francisco Standard about the Department Operations Center. Um, I'm, I'm curious if the work of the Department Operations Center can theoretically be done entirely by civilians, or are there tasks that require sworn officers? And if so, sort of what percentage of those tasks would require a sworn officer? I believe a lot of the work can be completed by civilians. Tasks like being involved in investigative processes are better served for sworn officers. For instance, um, there's a lot of information that flows through that Department Operations Center that will get the ball rolling on critical incidents. Um, not that non-sworn can't be trained on that. I do think um, it, it could be done by either, and uh, I'm not here to say that those, some of those jobs can't be civilianized because they can't. You know, right now we, we do have PSAs or public uh, police services, I'm sorry, who work um, the DOC and that can be expanded and may very well be expanded. You know, there's some, some labor issues that have to go along with that, labor discussions, but a, as of now it, it's a mixture of both. So yeah, some of them, there's a possibility. Okay. Um, you talked a little bit with uh, Vice President Carter Oberstone about that some people are there with the pendency of a disciplinary case. Some people there are at their request. Um, I, I know the article discussed transfers there due to uh, a chief's order. Would those that are there by chief's order be inclusive of both those groups? Or if someone requested to be there, would that be some other process? Uh, it, it could be inclusive of both of those groups. I mean, if somebody comes and makes a request or um, let's say a um, deputy chief or commander requests a, a person to be assigned to within their unit or command, um, chief's order, um, at the request of deputy chief or commander or captain or, or, or you know, whoever is making that request. So it's, it's a combination of both. And one, the, another thing that, that we're really trying to get away from culturally is the stigma of a chief order always meaning uh, or the belief that it means that this employee has done something bad because it's not all that is not the case in every instance and oftentimes it's not the case but that is the stigma and the culture that uh, is associated with chief's orders so that's another reason why I really you know want to push back hard on these these labels of units like the DOC being a place where you know people who do bad things go or people who can't otherwise function we, we have to get away from that um, I by coincidence, uh, this same week that we, we saw this article in the Standard, there was also some reporting out of Los Angeles about similar uh, things going on there. And um, I think that at, at that uh, in Los Angeles, uh, Chief Moore down there identified uh, 69 officers currently at LAPD, which he described as having some form, he used the term credibility restrictions that otherwise restricted their their uh, what roles they could be in. I think he included Brady in that, and, as well as I think um, pending disciplinary charges as well. I know that obviously different departments have different policies, but I, I was wondering if there could be uh, 
a similar analysis undertaken as to the kind of, uh, to something analogous to credibility restrictions that we could disclose because I think what was shocking about this article were, were the numbers and were that the people didn't know. I mean, people generally know that things like this happen, but not with specificity. So I'm guessing there's not an equivalent credibility restriction number that SFPD has handy, but I'm wondering if that could be uh, something you could undertake to, to provide to the commission. Uh, yes, and I will say this. I mean, those types of decisions, you know, those personnel decisions, of course, they're, they're not to be released publicly, but they... Our, our decisions, our, our Brady process is very thorough. It's been vetted by courts, and there's been a, a presentation in the commission on our Brady process. That that's not the basis of those decisions. Um, it, you know, discipline is is a different issue, or other restrictions that um, cause people to have restricted environments or restricted conditions is another is another thing. But um, that that's not the basis of our decision. I appreciate that. I think I just meant that I think in that 69 in L.A., I believe that was inclusive of Brady for them as well as other, as well as this other category you're talking about. But if we could endeavor to, to generate some number to provide to the public as to, because uh, like now we know that in L.A. there are 69 officers operating under some sort of credibility instruction, uh, restriction, and I think if we could provide that number to the public as to, uh, again, without disclosing individual discipline cases or violating the police officer's bill of rights, what the status of credibility restrictions and how that affects SFPD's operations. Okay. Um, the next topic I'd like to talk about uh, is, is the MOU. I just wanted to check. I know we talked last week and there was a meeting scheduled between the department and the DA. I believe it was the next week. Is that, is that meeting still on calendar? It's still on calendar and then that will be followed uh, within days with the meeting with the, sign, with the judge and then uh, Hopefully we'll be on our way. The MOU, I mentioned this in our last hearing at police commission meeting, um, I think it's January 30th, I believe, is the date that the MOU, so we pushed it through the holidays, but the meetings will be uh, within the next uh, week and a half. So as, as I understand, the, the, the three steps that are still ongoing are there's a meeting with the DA, a meeting with the judge, and then a meeting with the Department of Police Accountability, or a, a finalization with the Department of Police Accountability on the MOU side deal? Are, yes, are, are those that, the remaining steps? That is correct. Okay, so I think we're on a recess until January 11th, so hopefully we'll have uh, by then, uh, you know, uh, a completed MOU and side deal uh, and an update for that? Yes, we'll, we'll. hopefully we'll have uh, very good news to, to share by then. Well, assuming that's done, I'd ask for that to be agendized uh, at okay. our January 11th meeting. That's all I have, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Yee. Uh, thank you very much there, President uh, Elias. Uh, just looking at the data for last week and then this week, uh, I, looking at it, the trend is going down. I want to thank the department and your staff uh, looking at it uh, throughout, uh, I guess, for last week and then uh, for this week. Uh, I was just wondering if there's any new program that you brought aboard, because if we trend this way, it's better than our, I don't want to say better than the Niners, but uh, it's looking great. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying that, I mean, there's still crime that does happen, and we still hear it out there, but the, the moves I think you're doing, I, I hope it's um, some stealth move that we, don't, we haven't seen yet, but maybe more can come from that from the, uh, going forward in 2023. Um, also want to follow up on uh, regards to Vice President Carter Overstone about the stunt driving, about the vehicles that are getting out there, and, and there's so many cars that are in, involved in this, and my concern is the registration and the license plate, making sure that um, 
that's one of the things. Maybe we can probably ensure that you, you know, if you're going to uh, curb it or uh, deter it, I think uh, the, the best follow-up is to trace it back to the registration and license plate. So that's uh, be my concern on that on the stunt driving. I, I know in San Jose they did, um, I guess, a, a block where they just block them off and shut them down and let them off one at a time and then side them. Is that something you consider? Well, um, well I, I know about the San Jose operation, and they definitely had uh, a tremendous amount of citations. I think it was over 500. They impounded 19 or so cars. Um, there were over 100 officers involved in that operation, which is, which is a huge lift for uh, a department of that size. So it, our, our strategy really has been to be consistent in our response. I mean, you know, that is a huge operation for any department to, to put that many officers in, and I'm glad they had some success. I don't know really what the strategy on the citations were, so I can't really comment on that, but we've taken the approaches. We need a consistent response, and that's why we assigned two lieutenants uh, to that full time and have gotten much better at working with whoever's on duty because you're not gonna always have the, you know, the, that amount of personnel. As a matter of fact, oftentimes when these things happen at two o'clock in the morning, you're not deployed like that unless it's a pre-planned operation. So we really wanna focus on the response, breaking them up quicker. One of the complaints that, that we were getting, it's, I think it's less now than it was when we started doing it this way, but how long it takes to respond. And then if there's not a coordinated effort of what happens next, like we know they splinter. We know that that's one of the tactics. If there's 200, then you end up with five, six sideshows all over the city, and we have to respond to that and be ready for that. So, and we know they go to other cities, <coughs> and we communicate with CHP, Oakland, San Jose, wherever they're going, and we've had some, and vice versa. So really, we want to focus on the consistency because those operations are very, very labor-intensive. They, they're good when they happen, uh, but they're very labor-intensive, so we've taken a slightly different approach. Yeah. And I uh, just want to thank your team, uh, the stunt driving team, for, I guess, keeping us safe, too, because it's, it's a tough job. It's a huge, huge safety issue. you got so many people out there doing so many um, uh, wild things. So I just want to thank the team as well for keeping us safe. Thank you very much there, Chief uh, Scott. Thank you. Um, I'm sorry, Commissioner Yee, you said that what, what percentage of the crimes went down? What category? Uh, you, you can go from... Uh, Are you talking about the year-to-date? Yeah, year, well, not year-to-date, week-to-week. Yeah, those week. have all increased. So, so the last, last week was uh, uh, in November 28th to oh, December. Okay, sorry. So the previous week, it, it dropped, and it dropped again this week. So. Um, just happy to say that we're moving in the right direction, but maybe something in the past that we had uh, major spikes that came through there. So maybe we're doing something different now that uh, people that are causing these crimes are we're addressing. Uh, robberies uh, down one, but uh, you also saw this. Uh, any, any drop in crime is great for our community. Um, great, thank you. Thank you very much there, uh, President Elias. Chief, I had a question about the um, uh, deployment of officers to Union Square for the holidays. Um, I know that you had talked about this last year and what a huge 
uh, strain on resources it is to divert officers to this location and the expense, and particularly the overtime that um, these deployments take. And so I'm wondering where we are this year on those efforts and whether or not we're gonna be exceeding the overtime budget that you've allocated uh, and what the plan is going forward. There, uh, we are deployed to, to Union Square um, and that's on a daily basis, our safe shopper. Um, we're also deployed to other parts of the city and some of the commercial corridors as well. The overtime budget, as we stand right now, we will exceed the budget. Uh, there's been a lot of demand, uh, more demand than we have budget and people for. Um, but that is part of our strategy with the retail theft. For instance, you know, some of our hardest hit retailers, some of the department stores in and around Union Square, we are deployed and want to deter that. So um, I was out with uh, two Fridays ago and a good example of how that deployment you know, pays dividends. There was um, an active crew of car burglars that committed or tried to commit a car burglary right on the Union Square footprint. Officers were there, they observed it, and it ended up uh, being a, a following and, you know, chased them to the, not chased them, it wasn't a pursuit, but they, uh, people actually got away, but they, you know, got on the bridge and left the city. So that's a piece of good news that I heard develop while I was out there on the radio, and I think there is, there is a positive effect. We've made a number of arrests because of deployment with people trying to break into cars and the, and the parking structures. Um, there was another arrest of a robbery crew that was circling around the Union Square area uh, looking for people to rob. They were armed. Um, officers spotted that and coordinated and that arrest was made and weapons were seized from the car. So there is some good work being done and that, whether it's Union Square, Stonestown, Westfield, we need to be in all those places and we try to do as best we can, Commissioner, but it does cost a lot of money. We can't do it with our regular deployment and we are using overtime to do it, including Westfield, which is uh, daily overtime, well, on duty and overtime uh, assignment. But we know when we're there, things tend to work a little better than when, we, when we're not. Thank you. Sergeant. For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item four, please approach the podium or press star three. Uh, President Lice, there is no public comment. Next item. Line item five, DPA director's report discussion. Report on de recent DPA activities and announcements. Commission discussion will be limited to determining whether to counter any of the issues raised for a future commission meeting. And DPA's monthly st statistical report, September and October. Director Henderson, welcome. Thank you. Uh, okay, let me get you through. Uh, an update on what DPA is doing right now. <clears throat> uh, so far this year, we have opened uh, 659 uh, cases, <coughs> uh, and we have closed 752 cases. Uh, we currently have 242 cases that are open and pending on our dockets. Uh, we've sustained 55 cases so far this year. Uh, this is up from last year's number this time, which was 46. We have mediated 19 cases 
and we have 23 cases whose investigations have gone beyond nine months. Of those 23 cases, 21 of the cases are told, meaning there's pending legal action, uh, either criminally or civilly, somewhere else. Uh, in terms of the numbers of cases that are pending, there are nine pending with the commission, and there are still uh, 87 cases uh, pending with the chief. There's no change in that from last week. In terms of the weekly trends, uh, what we've seen coming into the office, uh, the top two allegations of complaints at 20% each uh, have been uh, involving complaints and allegations that officers fail to take required action and officers behaving, behaving or speaking inappropriately to the public. In terms of a breakdown in terms of the precinct, uh, the top precinct this week uh, was in the Tenderloin, uh, and the allegations involved failing to uh, make arrests and failing to, or making inappropriate comments to the public. Uh, again, these are allegations. Uh, in terms of outreach, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, in terms of our monthly trends, <clears throat> which I may have, I think I missed them before and I re-added them here to make sure that I just make a record of them. Again, anything that anyone has missed, these records are on our website and available at any time. Uh, but in September, 33% uh, of the cases in September involved allegations of an officer speaking or behaving inappropriately with the public. In October, 38% uh, of the allegations involved the same thing, officers speaking to or behaving inappropriately with the public. Again, the full breakdown by specific allegations uh, individually is uh, located on the website. Just reminding folks so I'm not why I'm not reading all of the lists of each allegation and only the top allegations. Uh, in terms of outreach, uh, we participated on December 6th uh, at the Bayview Station meeting uh, and with our audit division on December 8th, we provided uh, SFPD with a draft copy of our annual audit, and this is the compliance with DGO 8.10 for calendar year 2021. As a reminder for folks, uh, this audit also tested SFPD's implementation of the eight recommendations made in DPA's prior report. Uh, we've also asked uh, the department to provide a response to the draft report by December 22nd, and once received, we'll issue the report publicly on the DPA website. And so that will all be happening while we are on the holiday break and we have ongoing operations. Uh, DPA has nothing in tonight's closed session, uh, but present in the room today is uh, Chief Tiana Rosenstein uh, and Senior Investigator Candace Carpenter in case there are issues that come up that need to be addressed while we're having the meeting. Also, if the public needs to get in contact with DPA, we can be reached at sfgov.org forward slash DPA, or we can, you can contact DPA by phone at 415-241-7711. I have uh, input on some of the other agenda items, but I will save my comments until those issues are called. Thank you, Director Henderson. It's good to have you back. Barely. Thank you. Um, and I wanted to congratulate you and commend you on your audit last week. I was paying attention. Um, apparently, the chair didn't recognize my hand. Um, so uh, but you, it was a phenomenal job. I want to congratulate you and your staff 
I know that, uh, as we saw, data presentations aren't easy, and the amount of information and the digestible way that you presented it was really, um, I thought, intentional, thoughtful, and well appreciated, and I, I, I loved it. Thank you. Thank you. I, I actually do, every time we present the reports, as you know, uh, and all of the other commissioners know, uh, I do take the feedback that I get every time I make a report and try and incorporate it into the subsequent report. So this audit and its report is a culmination of many of the improvements that have been made <coughs> in the weekly, monthly, quarterly, and annual reports uh, that we've gotten feedback on. So with more graphs, more details, which is a culmination of the analysis being presented in new ways so it's not as difficult for a layperson or an individual to pick up our reports and understand both what we've analyzed and what the conclusions are that are being reflected in the data. Thank you for noticing that. It's a lot of work goes into that process and I wanna thank my audit team, especially uh, Steve Flaherty for all of the work that he puts into that process. Thank you, and uh, just to let you know, I will be asking to agendize some of the um, that audit again, as well as the department's response to the audit. Fantastic. As well as um, I, we anticipate more, because this was just sort of the first in a series, right? That is correct. Okay. And, and again, the reason that I'm doing that is so it's more digestible. I, I don't want to overwhelm either the department or the commission with the whole slew of recommendations that just float. And this way, I think it's more digestible. They're more related specifically to individual topics so they can be addressed completely and comprehensively uh, by this, by all of us. Great, thank you. All right, Sergeant. Members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item five, please approach the podium or press star three. Present lives, there's no public comment. Thank you. Line item six, commission reports, discussion and possible action. Commission reports will be limited to a brief description of activities and announcements. Commission discussion will be limited to determining whether to counter any of the issues raised for a future commission meeting. Commission president's report, commissioner's reports, and commission announcements and scheduling of items identified for consideration at a future commission meeting. Thank you, Sergeant. I'll start this um, section off. It's been a pretty uneventful week for me. So uh, what I have been working on is DGO 9.01, um, and we have been looking at all of the um, responses and really thoughtful edits from various individuals. I wanted to thank my fellow commissioners for their robust discussion last week on this item. I was really excited that um, we were able to present the DGO to uh, our fellow commissioners who haven't been able to participate in the process given the laws and the Brown Act, which prevent them from doing so, um, because we are very careful of that, and we really don't want to be sued. So um, I was happy to see the discussion and the um, ability to correct any misinformation that has been out there about this DGO. So that is all I have to report, um, and I'm going to turn it over to Commissioner Yanez. Thank you, President Elias, um, and good evening, uh, Director Henderson, Chief Scott, and uh, the community at large. I do, uh, you know, we're working on the uh, juvenile uh, DGO revision, and as a result of last week's presentation on the impact of uh, 
the policing and the tenderloin and the 25% increase in juvenile citations and arrests, I do want to agendize a full conversation on juvenile justice um, sometime in January, if possible, February, if, if we have a lot of items. Uh, we could use that as an opportunity to talk about uh, the progress towards revising that DGO, but I really do, in light of the fact that we are working towards um, you know, closing the, the juvenile detention center at some point, uh, it, it was really striking and alarming to, to actually even hear one of the statements uh, from, uh, I believe it was the lieutenant or sergeant from the TO saying that basically, I mean, if there's possession, if there's paraphernalia, they were arresting. And so I want to know whether that trend is actually happening outside of solely the Tenderloin District. Um, and a, a specific question I do have for you, Chief, right now is at one point there was a juvenile division in the department. Um, is, is there, or would you be able to share why we no longer have that, um, considering we're in a direction of closing uh, the detention center and that we know the impact of policing and detention and pulling guns on young people can have detrimental effects for a lifetime? Yeah, yeah Commissioner, there, my understanding is there did used to be a juvenile division. It was disbanded before I became chief here. Um, my understanding also is that when investigations in the past was centralized, um, there were officers that worked juvenile crimes that were assigned to investigations bureau. Um, in around 2009-2010, investigations bureau got decentralized and uh, that's when the station investigative team started. Set and a lot of those investigators were assigned to their local stations, which really uh, shrink, shrank the footprint of Investigations Bureau. When I got here, Investigations Bureau was much smaller than it is right now because of the need to be more efficient and, and um, some of the staffing woes. We have started to re-centralize Investigations Bureau. As a matter of fact, the set teams, uh, as we knew them two, three years ago, no longer exist. So most of those folks have been reassigned to Investigations Bureau. First phase of that was we reestablished, you know, the robbery uh, detail as we know it today. And hopefully at some point we can have that discussion about reestablishing a specialty for juvenile division, because I do believe it needs to be a specialty, you know. Um, we're not there yet because we just can't afford to do it personnel-wise, but definitely it's something that we, we would like to, to um, to consider and, and possibly implement if, if, if and when we get the staffing to do that. Got it. Um, thank you for that. I think it would be important to just have a broader conversation about uh, juvenile justice and what the role of the department is in that area. Uh, the other item I did want to talk about and more than likely agendize unless you have um, some feedback or some answers. A couple of weeks ago, there was an article that you know created an uproar, and we didn't really talk about it last week because we had so much going on. And I know the board of supervisors had at one point uh, authorized and then pulled the item around you know arming computers. I'm going to call them. And uh, in addition to that, though, the real challenge for me was that I know that as a part of AB 481 
we're, we have a new expectation to detail and uh, monitor and manage our arsenal of weapons. And as we're moving away from the militarization of departments, I would hope, um, I, I want to understand better how it is outside of the RoboCop situation, how is it that we can identify 375 machine guns or semi-automatic machine guns that's standard issue and what process uh, took place and why we weren't necessarily a part of that conversation if this is around policy and how to uh, assign different weapons, right? So I don't know if you have comments on that. If you do, great. I still think we should have a full conversation on how we're going to respond to AB481 moving forward. The fact that I think it requires more than a two-second response it, it, because yes. it, it's a very important topic and I want us to have the time to explore because I'm sure other commissioners have questions about that as well. Thank you. Thank you. I think it's also worth noting that the Board of Supervisors just sent it back to committee, so it'll be, it'll come up before the board. They didn't pull it, they just sent it back to committee for further consideration, so it's back before them too. Thank you, that's my report. Thank you. Commission, uh, Commissioner Benedicto. Thank you very much, President Elias. Um, just a couple of um, items uh, for my report. Uh, one is that work is continuing on DGO 7.01, which is involves juveniles. Um, Commissioner Yanas and I will be attending a working group meeting on that uh, tomorrow and, um, and then continue meeting regularly on that. So I'm glad that that's moving forward. Um, additionally, uh, as I noted last week, um, on DGO 5.16, which is search warrants, uh, the Chief and I had a productive meeting with the DA's office and the Bar Association and think we have reached the point where it's ready for commission action on uh, our first meeting of February. So ask for that to be agendized then. Um, there's some chance there'll be a single draft, but there's some chance there'll be some open items for the commission to collectively decide on as a body on some uh, of the issues that are still uh, need to be resolved. Um, additionally, um, as everybody knows, we uh, had a, a robust debate last week on uh, DGO 9.01 on traffic stops. Uh, since that time, the commission has received uh, letters from the Mayor's Office of Disability, the Department of Disability and Aging Services, and the MTA Board. Today, members of the commission met with both the Mayor's Office of Disability and the Department of Disability and Aging Services, and we'll be meeting with the MTA Board um, uh, soon, which I think I, I leads me to just reiterate a point that Vice President um, Carter Oberstone said last week when discussing our outreach on 9.01, which is that there has not been a single request for a meeting with commissioners on 9.01 that has not been granted, whether it's from neighborhood groups or other agencies. Um, at every, uh, at, we've accepted and made accommodations to meet uh, at every juncture. And similarly, when, when it comes to agency input, our working group process also solicited any and all agency input as well. So I'm glad to continue that with these meetings that took place today and expect to have more of those um, over the next few weeks before we return in January. And that's my report. Thank you, Commissioner Benedicto. Vice President Carter Overstone. Uh, thank you, President Elias. Uh, as, as Commissioner Benedicto mentioned, um, the mayor's office on uh, disability and um, the, the Department of Disability and Aging reached out to the commission. Um, we met with, with both today and um, really appreciate um, the folks from those offices reaching out and sharing their specific 
concerns, ideas, and, and lending some of their expertise to this process. Um, you know, we scrutinized the MTA data very closely to make sure that nothing in this policy, you know, we weren't banning stops for anything that's contributing to crashes or injuries on our roadways, but um, at the same time, uh, disabled folks and, and elderly folks can be disproportionately impacted, even if there, there aren't, um, you know, significant um, collisions happening, and just want to say to the public that, you know, we're really committed to making this policy work for, for everyone, um, including including people from the, the disabled community. So uh, just just wanted to acknowledge um, the, the, the meeting that we had and acknowledge our intent. Um, did want to address a couple of the DGOs that, that I'm, I've been assigned to, and, and just for background for members of the public, a, a few months ago, Director Henderson and DPA put together a presentation showing that there were around 25-ish DGOs that were supposed to be in the revision process directed by the department, where the department had received DPA's recommendations for those re revisions based on nationally recognized evidence-based practices, but that those revisions were not happening and that those DGOs had been languishing for sometimes as long as two years. And in response, <coughs> you know, I, I guess, and I'll say at the time, commissioners at the time were critical of the department. I was one of those commissioners. But I also said at the time that this commission needed to accept a lot of the responsibility for that because it is ultimately our job to ensure that these revisions happen in a timely fashion. Um, and now that we've passed DGO 3.01, there's no longer any ambiguity about what a timely fashion means because 3.01 sets out a detailed step-by-step -step process that needs to happen for every DGO revision and sets out specific timelines that have to be met. And if DPA or the department cannot meet a timeline, there is only one way to extend it, and that is to submit in writing a request to the commission, uh, ceasing the commission president um, and ceasing the director of DPA. Um, so I, I, I wanted to check in on a couple of the DGOs that that I'm responsible for shepherding through the process. And the first is DGO 810, First Amendment, um, First Amendment <clears throat> activities. Um, because it appears that, that a deadline has been missed. Um, and Chief, you know, I reached out to you about this before, before the meeting. It appears a deadline's been missed. It's my understanding that there hasn't been a request made in writing. Um, in addition, DPA did ask for certain documents that it needed in order to put together its stage one recommendation grid. Those, those emails requesting documents were never responded to as far as I understand. The initial email was sent on uh, October 27th. There wasn't any response <coughs> or production of documents. And DPA produced, even though it didn't get the documents it needed to do it, it produced its recommendation grid on November 3rd. The department's response under 3.01 was due on December 6th. Um, it still has not responded to DPA to its recommendation grid as required by 3.01, as far as I know. Um, before we go any further, just wanted to give you a, sh a chance, Chief, to correct any of that if I've misstated uh, 
misstated any of the facts as far as you know them. Um, I'm not. Yeah, I'm looking at some of the notes on 810. Now, I, I, from the notes, don't know what was communicated uh, from the notes, but I do know there is communication. Uh, for instance, on 810, the 90-day clock started on 1024. Uh, DPA advised on 11:20 that the commission directed a working group on this. My understanding is there was some communication back and forth on that issue. On 11-3, uh, DPA made a recommendations grid. My understanding is we received it on the 6th. And there, the, date, the deadline that was missed was the response to the recommendation grid. Um, one of the things to take in consideration, and that deadline was missed, it was due 12-6. This is one with a working group that will extend it from a 90-day minor stating of 3.01 to 120-day. We hired our work group facilitator who started this Monday uh, for the community work group. So we have now a better understanding of what our capabilities and our timeline on the DGOs that require work groups. My understanding also, although you don't have it yet at the commission, that the, our folks who are working on this have a uh, recommend or a request for a 30-day extension that has not gotten to the commission yet so definitely we own that so uh, that's where we are on on 810 right okay I just want to separate out a couple things sorry separate out a couple things so I understand that there might be a separate discussion about the working group because we have limited resources to do them and we have to decide which order they go in but that's completely separate from this deadline, which is well ahead of when any working group might happen. This is just a response to the stage one recommendation grid. There can be a separate extension request when we get to the working group part and the department can say, hey, we just don't have the resources to do it and we can decide whether that's good cause then. But that's separate from this. I guess, look, I'm very concerned because we have a situation here where DPA sends their grid on time they follow up multiple times over email and get no response. The department's well aware of its 3.01 deadlines and they're just, things are just getting ignored here. And like I said, it's, it's our job now to make sure that these, these deadlines are followed. I, I'm just concerned that it appears to be, this isn't, I, w I wouldn't even be bringing this up if, the, if it was a day late and someone just forgot and it slipped and they said sorry we'll get it to you you know tomorrow this is a situation where folks in charge of 810 are getting multiple emails and ignoring them uh, reminder emails reminder that the that the deadline has slipped and and there's no response and there's no explanation i know after i i texted you today they you know only after that they sent an email requesting ex an extension and that email doesn't even comply with 3.01 because it doesn't outline good cause. It doesn't say why there's good cause for an extension. I mean, what, what, what is this commission supposed to do to make sure that 3.01 deadlines are, are followed? It, so I do want to get back to you because my, my understanding is there has been conversation between the DPA personnel and the department. But, but uh, only very recently. I mean, not... Well, that's okay. not my understanding. Okay. But okay. 
You say there's no response? But, I do want to get back to you and follow up with that. Okay. Um, the, the, the issue of, of what the department has to do, these DGOs that do require like A-10, there's multiple components in A-10. And the recommendation grid is, is definitely part of that process. There's also the other parts that you've already talked about, and I talked about work groups, and uh, A-10 also has some other issues that need to be decided upon before this DGO passes. Uh, this is something that I've stated from the start with 3.01, that we're going to do the best we can to make these DGOs come to life when they're supposed to come to life, and I still think we have a chance to do that on this particular DGO. But I do hear your point as far as the 12-6 deadline to get back to DPA was missed. Um, that doesn't mean this DGO is not going to be done on time, but that deadline was missed. And there is or it has been communications with DPA, and that's my understanding anyway, but the specific emails that you are referencing, I will get back to you because my understanding is there has been communication. Okay. All right. I appreciate that. I mean, the degree and extent of communication to me is a bit beside the point. There, there just was never an attempt to request an extension, which is the only, you know, there's just, there's one thing you can do under 3.01. There's no ambiguity when you're not going to meet the deadline. And so December 6th is the deadline. I'm, you know, by December 5, hopefully earlier, so that the commission can decide whether there's good cause, there needs to be something submitted. Um, I mean, this, this is a violation of department policy, right? And it appears to be a willful violation of department policy. And I think that this commission has to be really clear about its intent to enforce this department policy the way we enforce any other policy on the books, because it can't be the fact that we need to, we find out after the fact every time there's a there's a violation of 3.01 and we have to bring bring it up at this commission hearing publicly in order for things to get done it just can't be the culture that we're not going to respect the 3.01 deadlines um and I, I think we need to look at this seriously for i mean because I, I know one way one thing that we do when there's willful violation of department policy is we impose discipline and i, I don't see you know, this is this this policy is on equal standing with every other policy on the books. So I just want to say I'm very troubled by what appears to be purposeful violation, evasion of a 3.01 deadline. Um, and I do think that it's necessary to agendize this for a future meeting to, to find out exactly what happened, because this just can't be the way we do business. Otherwise, we'll just be back where we started with 25 DGOs just hanging around. So. I, I appreciate your forthrightness, Chief, about acknowledging the deadline has passed, and I know that you weren't personally involved necessarily in this, but um, I, I do find it concerning, given what, you know that we just made a big effort to address this. Um, okay, other DGO 3.13 um, that I've also been assigned. My understanding is the 40-day the clock elapsed today, yesterday. I just got a calendar alert yesterday. Um, okay. So, and I and I so I think that means the commission should have it, but I I don't have it. I haven't seen it at least. Do you have an update on that? Yeah, I do. Uh, that DGO is at least this draft form has been completed. Uh, actually, I 
signed off on it today. Um, there was some revisions made um, or recommended, and this was a collaborative conversation with DPA on this particular revision and was added. And so that policy was signed off. Um, that's one that I hope to get that the commission <laughs> can agendize it when it returns on January 11th. But the policy is done. Folder's been uh, approved. And it, when, once it gets agendized, that one will be hopefully in the books. OK, well, that's great to hear. Sounds like there's been some great progress made on that. But again, is it your understanding that that deadline has been missed because we don't have it today? And this, this is my understanding the 40-day clock is run. Uh, that deadline has been missed because it's not in your hands today. That is correct. Okay. And on this one, there was a meeting um, that I requested that happened on Monday with Commissioner Elias and Sergeant Youngblood to discuss this, this policy revision. Um, it was it was not possible to get this on this agenda because the revision just got finalized, but the deadline was missed to answer your question. So, um, but the policy is done. Okay. So, so I guess just once again, like I understand there can be good reasons why we can't get things done on the deadline, but once again, it can't be treated as optional whether we're going to submit a, a written request for an extension ceasing the appropriate parties. I just, I just don't think we can do our jobs on this commission if we have to catch these things after the fact like this. Um, and I do think, as I said before, we need to agendize 810 specifically and what happened there. And I, I hope to get 3.13 soon, since it sounds like it's done. But if not, then I hope to get a written extension request for why we're not going to get it. Yeah, 3.13 we will be sent as soon as the commission office can get it to you, but it's, it's finished. Okay. Thanks, Chief. Thank you. Director Henderson? Yeah, I, d I just want to say thank you for bringing that up, uh, Commissioner. <clears throat> uh, part of what is behind this movement, just in general speaking back and forth, I just want to drill down and make it a little bit more specific. Uh, and that was a fantastic example. But part of what the push is and making sure that we're following the rules and the implementation of all of this is because DPA specifically, and I know we're a lot of the driver for a lot of this back and forth with these deadlines, but because our reporting and transparency obligations are at the level that they are with the weekly, monthly, quarterly, annual reporting, not to mention the obligations baked into the very precise process of our audit and reporting with the audit, the deadlines have, have always had a disproportionate effect on our work in informing not just the commission, but the department and the public as well. And so I know this is, <laughs> the process contained um, in the policy that we pass so that we stay on schedule more regularly is, is very important, I believe. And, you know, to the chief's uh, response, there, there's a lot of back and forth from the department with my department on a variety of different things, but on the very specific things, we have not in the past drilled down at this level of focus to make sure that all of these deadlines are being passed. And I do believe it's important, and it's probably, it is clearly taking us some time to get there. But the outcome is so important that I think we just have to continue with the process like this. And this was the whole reason that I wanted a commissioner assigned to some of the specific projects so that we could have this level of detail beyond just 
I know in the past it would just be the commission asking me, are there any deadlines? Are you missing anything? And then I would try and remember the list of specific things of what was missing or what we needed in the pipeline. But this process, I believe, is getting better. And I fully believe that once we get up to speed with the full implementation where both sides are able to meet these deadlines, we will be able to continue our efficiencies that we've seen in the most recent past with data being shared in the right way and allowing us to continue in the work that I believe is so important. And so I know this is all a little uncomfortable back and forth, but I, I really do think that it's important and outcome determinative for how we're all able to do our job. So thank you for the hard conversations and the, before we've even done it, the continued agendizing, is that a word? The continued agendizing of these internal deadlines that shape uh, the work that all of us have to do. Oh, thank you. Can I? Now, thank, I just want to thank uh, Executive Director Henderson. I, I, the work and the collaboration is it has really, really come a long way. Um, we have to fix our end of it. We have to fix you know, the report, like if we're going to be a day late, we need to write you and tell you. Uh, we're going to be a week late, we need to write you, or two weeks late. So I definitely understand and own that. But the work itself has vastly improved in terms of the collaboration between the two agencies. And I just I, I felt the need to say this. I'm going to give a good example of what that looks like so there's an understanding. We have a, a foot pursuit policy that's coming to the commission that we've been working with DPA on. DPA has sent back some, uh, after our last meeting sent back some um, recommended revision to the language. And we've been trying to schedule a meeting that we can't get scheduled. Most of this is because of my calendar for three weeks. And I know that is meeting with uh, some with frustration, but I, I just can't work it in. So that, that's a situation where we have to own um, making sure the notifications and the requests for extensions are sent to the commission because that is not at all uncommon. So there are things, some growing pains here, Commissioner, but I assure you that the work is better than it's ever been in terms of what is actually happening in terms of the collaboration and the policy discussion and the dis back and forth discussion between DPA. It's as good as it's been since during my time here. So just wanted to flag that as well. I also think it speaks volumes the way that Lieutenant Alcafar and uh, Director Kaywood work really well together and are very efficient in moving this forward. So um, I think yeah. that that process and what we've built in um, is really helping and we're seeing some of the benefits. Yes, I agree. Thank you. All right, Sergeant. For members of the public that like to make public comment regarding line item six, please approach the podium or press star three. And there is no public comment. Item. Line item seven has been pulled from the agenda. Line item eight, discussion and possible action to approve the award certification panel's recommendations. Discussion and possible action. Just presenting. Um, yeah, um, the commissioner and I and, and the chief uh, met um, both of the cases uh, that the chief wrote in the letter were uh, disciplina uh, disciplinary cases. One of them, I'm sure the commission will remember from about a month ago, um, given um, the outcome of the case, uh, uh, 
uh, Commissioner Yee and I concurred with the Chief's recommendation that the awards be uh, presented to the officers. Uh, what, uh, I'm not sure on both. One of them involved the, the shooting in the barbershop in, um, uh, at, out near Geneva and Mission, which was uh, put a number of officers' lives in danger. Uh, it was a terrible situation. And, um, but at the same time, we have to consider the discipline. Thank you. And I need a motion and a second. Uh, I, I will make the motion uh, uh, to follow the chief's recommendation uh, that uh, the awards be given to those two officers listed in the letter. I'll second that. On the motion to accept the awards certification panel's recommendation, Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. Vice President Carter Overstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Overstone is yes. And President Elias? Yes. President Elias is yes. You have seven yeses. Uh, For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item eight, please press star three or approach the podium. And there is no public comment. I apologize. We need to take the vote one more time for the mo on the motion. Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Vice President Carter Overstone? Yes. President Elias? Yes. You have seven yeses. Line item nine, discussion and possible action to approve revised Department General Order 11.08 grooming standards for the department to use in meeting and conferring with the San Francisco Police Officers <laughs> Association as required by law. Discussion and possible action. Thank you, uh, President Elias. So on this DGO grooming <clears throat> standards, it, I'll just cut to the chase on it. There was a lot of input from members of the department on this, which actually started pre-COVID. Um, in all, and I personally participated in all of these, these meetings with various members and uh, employee groups, including um, OFJ and, and, and others. Probably, um, I'm gonna estimate over 300 officers that weighed in on this policy over the time that we were holding this. Plus, um, we've had community meetings on this as well, and uh, at least, uh, approximately 100 community members weighed in on this. The bottom line is this, based on all of that input, got us to this policy. Uh, we've also looked at other departments around the country and what they're doing in terms of practices with policies, including the Bay Area, on tattoos, on facial hair, on other grooming standards, and that is what informed this policy. So there definitely are some changes in this policy from the prior policy, which has not been updated in a while. Um, officers um, who weighed in on this really believe that as long as there's professionalism and appearance, um, we should be measuring officers by their work, by their character and things that really matter and not, you know, hairstyles and beards and those types of things, as long as those hairstyles and beards are professional. So um, I urge the commission to move this policy forward uh, for meet and confer with the police officer association and thanks for allowing me to present on it sounds good can i get a motion motion to approve excuse oh, me uh, may i oh, oh. well your name wasn't on <laughs> okay go ahead sorry um chief i i just had one concern and it may not apply to many officers in um 
for the San Francisco Police Department, but the idea that a, a member of the Sikh community has to seek the religious exception uh, to wear his turban, um, um, it, it, caused a, 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 it caused a tremendous controversy in Canada. I know there's a huge Sikh population there that even the prime minister had to intervene. So I, I, I personally think that the uh, members of the Sikh community shouldn't have to seek the religious exception. Uh, if they're a practicing Sikh, they should just be allowed, you know, to wear the turban instead of the of the hat, uh, uh, the San Francisco police hat. And and uh, you know, eventually in Canada, the RCMP uh, saw the light of day to recognize that. Um, and I, again, I don't know how many members of the Sikh community are in San Francisco police, but it is the obvious exception. Uh, um, and it, it's very well documented in, in Canada. But again, I see the religious exception in there, but the idea that they would be forced to do that when it's, when it's rather obvious is, um, you know, I, we, we want to be sensitive of all, all communities, and, and we are a diverse city. Anyway, that, that was my only comment. Thank you. I just want to say that, the, that having these more modern grooming practices and specifically... Uh, racially specific standards is a huge step in the right direction and will absolutely impact part of the recruitment challenges that I think mm -hmm. we've had here and I know other departments have had. So I'm just glad that we're having this conversation, this discussion, especially as it relates to race, because I think it speaks directly to making the department more diverse in ways that are positive for everything that we deal with here on this commission. So. Thank you, Director Henderson. Chief, are you willing to make that uh, adjustment in the policy? Um, yes, I am. Um, are you, you're talking about G, right? Just so we're is it Section G consideration for. Yeah. There's an exception, but um, but it, if the person is a practicing member of the, of the Sikh community, then they're going to wear the turban and 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 the, and the long hair underneath. The facial hair is already recognized, so that's not an issue. Because again, they would do their facial hair in a particular manner, but the the wearing of the San Francisco regulation police hat is going to a member of the Sikh community is not going to be able to put that hat on, uh, and as I said, that caused a tremendous controversy in in Canada enough that the prime minister actually got involved because the Mounties have a particular hat that's rather distinctive, um, well, but I. Yeah. Burn, I, Can, I know that you don't like doing live edits, and you always want the public to see exactly what you write. Yeah, I think this is a small one, though, uh, with all. Oh, there's an exception. Yes. <laughs> How interesting. Well, life is full of exceptions. Uh, okay, well, uh, so, to keep, may, may I, may I right, offer exactly. just Why one? Commissioner, uh, Commissioner, well, President Elias, I'm sorry. Can I just uh, offer this, and it's a comment and a question for Commissioner Burns. Burn. Um, in Section A of hair, hairstyle, I mean, I know we're talking about a turban and that uh, is part of that is hairstyle, part of it is not. But that section, when you look at number four, when required hairstyles must, must allow for proper wearing of the department issue service cap, ball cap, or authorized protective headgear. So um, that appear, uh, applies to beards as well in terms of... The, the, the beards, it, when I read it, I thought... I thought it was fine. It was the it was the uh, regulation hat, and and that's what reminded me of the of the um, 
of the controversy in Canada with the Sikh community, where, where they wouldn't let uh, members of the Sikh community join unless they were prepared to take it off, which, which you know, wasn't that long ago. And I, I would, you know, again, it won't apply to many officers in San Francisco, but, uh, but it speaks to the diversity and the welcoming uh, of that to acknowledge that, that uh, you know, the practicing Sikhs do do that. So what are you suggesting? Wait. Because at yeah. this point, yep. we need to figure. Can I just, yeah, can I just ask a clarifying question? So Commissioner Byrne, we currently in Section G permit officers to, to seek an exemption for religious purposes. Right. You're, you're saying that that section should be amended to explicitly uh, reference Sikhs as having a, a per se exemption that right, they don't. Right, because it, it's, it's documented, particularly in Canada, um, um, the, the hat, yeah. the Mountie hat doesn't, uh, doesn't go on the regulation hat. It, it just, it, it doesn't work. Right. And there was a whole controversy about that. Fortunately, there isn't any in San Francisco, but it's, it's the idea that something that's so obvious, they're going to have to seek an, an exception. It's one thing, right. you know, I I'm, can't think of any other, uh, religion at this time. But because of the precedent of what happened in Canada, I thought, well, you know, um, it would be appropriate to recognize it. Right. So, can, oh, well, can sorry. I just quickly respond? Very short. So, I agree with everything you said. You know, substantively about ensuring that that um, people who are Sikh can can serve in our department and, you know, comply with our our grooming standards. I think that it would pose a legal problem to single out a, a specific religion for favor treatment under the religious clauses um, to say that one religion gets a per se exemption and every other religion has to seek uh, permission on a one-off basis. Um, and so for that reason, I, I, I would oppose that, that, um, that change to this policy, although substantively I, I, I agree with it your sentiment, um, I just don't think that we can have a, a special process for one religion and every other religion has a different process as, as a constitutional matter. Um, sorry. Yes, I, I concur with, with Vice President Carter Oberstone. I think substantively it makes sense to have accommodations. Uh, I, I would hope those accommodations wouldn't require the, the same intervention as it did in Canada. And I also think there are serious concerns about having a per se exception for uh, explicitly for one religion. I think that I, I think that at this stage it, it, it might make sense if, if, if Commissioner Byrne wanted to make a motion to amend that uh, to pass without amendment, we could vote on that. And if it passes, it would go that way. Otherwise, we could make a, an alternative motion to pass as written. Right. If if I may respond, I mean um, the the. The RCMP didn't have any problem in, 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 in putting the exception in, and I don't. Uh, I, I would uh, venture to say that uh, the Canadian uh, freedom of religion is, is uh, with any reason, just as strong as it is in this country, and it's. It, it isn't. It, it's just there. I can't think of, and, and before I mention this tonight. I was trying to think of any other sort of, because the facial hair is allowed, it's clear, but that hat requirement is in. So if, if, if you were to say, but this would then require not, not doing it tonight, if we were to take religion out of it, then say, 
if if uh, if the interferes uh, with the headgear of the police department uh, because of his religious belief, he should be exempted. Uh, that would be aimed at the Sikhs without mentioning the Sikhs, because that's the one that's clearly obvious where where there was the controversy. Um, then yeah, but then I would add, then I would make a motion that the it be put over so that we can have language to comply with. Uh, Commissioner Carter Overstone and Commissioner Benedetto's, uh, Benedetto. so that does mea culpa. Um, uh, Commissioner Benedicto's uh, comments, so that it it would comply with that we're not singling out a religion, even though the intent is to help the Sikh community, so that they they don't they don't have to go and say, you know, knock on somebody's door and say, oh, uh, by the way, I'm a Sikh. Here's my turban. I can't wear the hat. You know, I, I don't feel like they, they need to jump through that hoop, which is the way it's written now. But I, I concur with you that language could be drafted so that the Sikh religion isn't mentioned, but we could get the intent that the Sikh community won't have to go in and do jump that extra step, you know, which is, which is obvious. So, yes, I would be unartful in that sense, but my sentiment still remains and I think it can be done without um, it can be done without um, well Commissioner Byrne I don't, I don't mean to cut you off because yeah. this was posted on Friday so if you had concerns I would have I really encouraged you to Are reach you out to the motion? chief yeah I'm making a motion to put it over so that we can change the language to accommodate well I, I think language in G is sufficient I don't intend to, to second the motion okay I, I think the motion second. fails for lack of a second all right next motion Motion to approve DGO 11.08 for the department to use and meet in conferring with the Police Officers Association. Second. For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item nine, please approach the podium or press star three now. There is no public comment. On the motion, Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? No. Commissioner Byrne is no. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. Vice President Carter Overstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Overstone is yes. And President Elias? Yes. President Elias is yes. You have six yeses. Next item. Line item, line item 10. Discussion impossible action to adopt revised Department General Order 3.17 Department ID cards. Discussion impossible action. Uh, thank you. I'll be very brief on this. This is really procedural um, DGO regarding ID cards. There's not a whole lot of um, things to, to, to really discuss. I urge the commission to, to move this forward. Motion. Most moved. Second. Second. For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item 11, or sorry, it's 10, please press star 3 now or approach the podium. There's no public comment. On the motion, Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. Vice President Carter Overstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Overstone is yes. And President Elias? Yes. President Elias is yes. You have seven yeses. Next item. Line item 12, discussion impossible action to rescind Department General Order 10.09 Computer Management Committee. Discussion impossible action. Chief. Thank you, Commissioner. So this general order, uh, we asked for approval to bring it to the commission to rescind. 
Um, Department General Order 3.01 includes language that the DGO should include definitions and procedural and procedures, procedures that are relevant. And for the reasons that I'm about to lay out, we believe that DGO 10.09 is outdated and no longer relevant. Department General Order 10.09 Computer Management Co Committee was published in August of 1994 and established the Computer Management Committee. The DGO defines the structure of the committee and responsibilities as it relates to developing strategic plans regarding com computers to handle making recommendations regarding the purchase, distribution, and use of computers with the department. The department doesn't believe it's necessary to have an overall department policy for this type of allocation of resources. Um, and it had actually the department got away from practicing this. I don't know how long uh, we had not been practicing when I arrived here, but I know when I arrived here, we had not been practicing this, this committee for a couple of years. We actually do now meet with the Department of Technology, with our Director of Technology in the department and our uh, members of our command staff. But we believe that this general order um, can really be handled by bureau order out of our technology division. Um, the, this, this, this DGO really can be done as an, it's an internal management tool for the department. And we do meet. Um, we have a good process that includes the Department of Technology Director, Linda Grell, and whoever she needs to bring to the meeting to make sure that our uh, planning and our vision and our budgetary um, requests are in alignment with what the city is doing. So we do have a process. Great. Thank you, Chief. Take Thank it. you. Uh, Commissioner Benedicto. Yes, I'll make a motion in a second. I just want to note that all the DGOs we've discussed today, 11.08, 3.17, and 9.01, all date to the 90s, which is you know, a long-term problem with the department. So glad to see that as of today, that's three fewer that date back to the 90s. I, I look forward to the day where there are no more DGOs left in the department that date back to the 90s. And with that, I'll make a motion to rescind Department General Order 10.09. Second. For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item 12, please approach the podium or press star three. And there is no public comment on the motion. Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. Vice President Carter Overstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Overstone is yes. And President Elias? Yes. President Elias is yes. You have seven yeses. Line item 13, public comment on all matters pertaining to item 15 below closed session, including public comment on item 14, vote whether to hold item 15 in closed session. If you'd like to make public comment, please approach the podium and press star three. And there is no public comment. Line item 14, vote on whether to hold item 15 in closed session, San Francisco Administrative Code section 67.10, action. Uh, I'll make a motion to hold item 15 in closed session. On the motion, Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. Vice President Carter Overstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Overstone is yes. And President Lias? Yes. President Lias is yes. You have seven yeses. We will go into closed session.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
President Lyons, we are back in open session and you still have a quorum. Next item. Line item 16, vote to elect whether to disclose any or all discussion on item 15 held in closed session. San Francisco Administrative Code section 67.12A, action. Motion not to disclose discussion of item 15. Second. Members of the public would like to make public comment regarding line item 16. Please approach the podium and press star three now. There's no public comment. Commissioner Walker on the motion, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. Vice President Carter Overstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Overstone is yes. And President Elias? Yes. President Elias is yes. You have seven yeses. Line item 17, adjournment, action. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Anyone still watching? Yes. <laughs> I don't think there is. <laughs>